tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800-938-007. That's our free phone number, won't cost you to make a call. Emma is looking after the show today. Coming up on the programme, Black Friday, is it an opportunity for consumers or how careful do we need to be? The influence of the far right is increasing in Ireland. That's uh, according to a new report. We'll be hearing from some listeners where that is concerned. We'll talk interior design with uh, Karen. We have Tipperary author Susie Murphy with us. And she'll talk to us about her brand new book and uh, legal matters with uh, John Lynch as well towards the end of the programme. We will play Tip FM's Match 3 at some point along the way. And we have a lovely prize to give away as well. I'll tell you more about that. Uh, later on. You can text and WhatsApp 083 You can email tiptoday at tipfm.com As a quick look at the front pages today, the Irish Independent, their lead story, telling us that a staffing crisis at Tusla, the Child and uh, Family Agency, is leading to some of the country's most vulnerable children being failed by the state once again. The Indo is also dominated by a photograph of the really unfortunate man, Thomas Hand, whose daughter Emily, as you know at this point, was taken hostage during the Hamas assault on Israel. He said he will believe a deal to release hostages is in place when I see it. God, the torture that man is going going through. The Irish Daily Mail, their lead story, Garda, the Garda Commissioner, indeed, Drew Harris, has appointed a psychologist to examine why so many Garda are leaving the force as it wrestles with an increasing retention crisis. He's hiring a psychologist to examine this. He doesn't need to hire it. All he needs to do is talk to the GRA, for God's sake, or even talk to me. Psychologist. Anyway, uh, the Irish Examiner and a story that's right across the newspapers today. In fact, uh, leading there, the world is on course for a hellish three uh, degree global heating, the UN has warned, with an emissions canyon between current policies and what is required to stop the earth heating beyond safe limits. Uh, The examiner, dominated by a photograph of the five-time All-Ireland winning Limerick hurler Kyle Hayes, uh, charged with two counts of violent disorder at the Icon nightclub in Limerick, uh, one which allegedly occurred in the club and one outside of the premises as well. He's also charged with assault causing harm to Killian McCarthy on the same date at uh, Limerick District Court. Um, the Irish Times again leading with that story that the world is set for a three degree temperature increase uh, according to the UN. Also on the Times today, an interesting story that a loophole in the road tax acts means that some drivers have avoided penalty points in return for being disqualified for periods as short as one day. And use of the loophole is uh, legal, and at least two district court judges have granted applications made by solicitors on behalf of a small number of drivers for short 
disqualifications. That's according to the Irish Times uh, today. So that's just a little of what's uh, on your front pages today. Again, if you want to make comment on any of that, we'd be delighted to hear from you. 083-311-3311. Now, Black Friday. Retailers, of course, trying to whip us all up into a spending fury. The seasonal spending spree arrives in the middle of a cost of living, energy and housing crisis. Dermot Jewell is Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland and joins me now. Dermot, good morning to you. Morning, Fran. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, you're very welcome. Lovely to talk to you again. It, it, does the consumer benefit from Black Friday or is it just a ruse, uh, Dermot, to, to generate huge sales? They can benefit, um, provided they do a little bit of homework. Um, and ensure, like Very often, Black Friday morphs into Cyber, into cyber Monday and the yeah. vast majority of people will be buying online. And you, with that in mind, that bit of homework helps because you can check what's happening online. You can see what the price is. You can see what the price has been, um, which is the key element there that, for example, you are actually getting a deal and it's not that they've hiked the price in the last couple of weeks in advance of, of Black Friday or Cyber Monday. Um, and that's where that's really the best way that you'll know if you're getting a deal by tracking the prices to some degree a little bit beforehand. So make a plan, Dermot, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. If you can at all, I know we might be, we're very close to the time, but it's still a good, there's plenty of time to do it um, because most offers that are there at the minute, they're teasers in advance of us actually getting to, to, to the date, which is always the best way of putting it. It's, it's a, this, this is an American element that, that grew and is now on a global basis. It's the, it's the day following Thanksgiving in the US. So that's the Friday afterwards and the following Monday, and that's how it all came about. But the key element that follows on from, and particularly in terms of pricing, is that you've got to check and be very sure from where you're purchasing it. Are you purchasing something in the EU or outside of the EU? Because if it, if you're purchasing from outside of the EU, and we need to remember that includes our very nearest neighbours, you potentially, and revenue were out on this yesterday, you potentially will be having an addition of VAT and or duty depending on the value of the item you bought. That's interesting. And what about our rights then in terms of UK now that they're outside of the EU and, and other places as well, Dermot? The, the, I mean, within the, EU, in, within the EU, we have an awful lot of benefits and supports and provisions. And you've got the, the, the cooling off period, for example. You can purchase something if you either, either don't like it or it, it's, there's anything wrong with it. You're, you're, you're very, very well covered in, in what happens. But if you're purchasing outside of the EU, and that includes the UK, it's really important that you check every element of advice that's on the website, like what type of detail are they giving in the, in the event of uh, you're not receiving on time, in the event that there's something wrong with the issue. You can't just return it. Once you're outside of the EU, there is no cooling off period. It's yours. You've bought it um, unless there's something wrong. And that's why it's really important, therefore, that you check the website you're on and how do you make contact with the organisation? How do you and whom do you do engage with? How do you return a, a product if there's something wrong with it? Is it a myth, Dermot, that if I buy with my credit card, which most of us will be doing, that I have certain protection there anyway? No, it's not a myth. It's it's um, it's a recommendation we've been given for years. Not necessarily to own a credit card because you need to be able to manage it very well, yes, Fran. Yes. But um, paying with a credit card is is 
if you pay with a debit card, it's the equivalent of paying in cash. It's immediate. It comes out of your account as you walk mm. out the door. Mm. Um, if you pay by credit card, if you think about it, um, you will get a bill from the credit card company. Um, it could be up to 50-odd days after you've made the, the, the purchase. They have not yet paid for it. Um, they will be waiting on your payment to, to make their payment. Um, and it gives you it gives you a kind of a cooling off period where if something is badly wrong, you can get in touch with your credit card company, say, I have a serious problem here. I can't make contact with the person with whom I purchased the product. And I'd like you to hold that payment for the time being. And they will do that. So you've got a very strong ally in, 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 yes. in helping you. And and do you know where Revolut are giving you a virtual credit card that is for a limited amount of money, whatever you choose to put into it? Does that have the same protections? Potentially, it should have, um, because it would come under the the provisions of of of, of the they would they would be um, um, approved um, and regulated under the, the governance of the central bank. Yes. So yes, they 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 would have to apply the same rules. Um, to in one form or another. So yeah, you again, a credit card is a very, it, it is very useful when you're purchasing online at a distance from people you don't know. It's interesting. Great care has to be taken. I nearly got caught there a few months ago. I was trying to buy an iPad, Dermot, and I got fierce excited at what I thought was a great bargain. Luckily, I did look into it, and it was a previous generation of the iPad. Ah, yeah, and and this is, I'm delighted you brought that up because it needs to be borne in mind something about about um, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. This this is a, this is a period of time just before Christmas and just before the New Year when new stock is coming in. So every effort will be made to clear stock. That is why, for example, you may see a price that's really really attractive and go wow that's fantastic in in your case for example you've just highlighted that's the reason you need to check exactly what model it is that you're getting how old is it on the market and how long has it been on the market and um, you may be able to buy it closer to home at about the same price so it's 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 interesting and important to as i say read the detail on whatever website you're on what are they saying and most importantly um if it's not clear then steer clear because if they're not telling you exactly what you're what you're spending your money on and what you're buying, there's a there's a reason, um, and it's 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 not usually in the best element, in best yes. interest of your good self. And and I presume if you buy a product without doing due diligence, like I almost did, that's not a reason for a return. Sure, it's not. No, it's not not at all. Because um, again, you know, you you checked everything. Um, you got an offer. You will be you will be asked to recheck before you click. Um, to purchase it, and you've done it, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's working. It's fine. Um, it may just simply say this is a this is a whatever iPad or, or computer of any make, um, and that's all you needed to know um, without asking for the question. So yes, as I said earlier, it's yours. You've bought it. Right, and and that assumption that all sales are good sales, um, we need to be not so naive, I suppose. No, we do not. This is it needs to be understood um, in, in plain English. This is a time of year, 
uh, higher than most, where every scam artist and, and rogue out there it has an opportunity to try to steer you onto a, either a, a wrong web, website, um, a fake website, use very, very good and very in, uh, detailed logos and representations to suggest that you're buying from a reputable site, but potentially you will not be. And it's why one of the key, small, simple things to do is at the very beginning, when you go online, you will see coming up in, in the browsers HTTP. You need to see HTTPS. S indicates it's a secure site, um, and they have a, a, a valid current security um, license on that site. And there also could be, when you get onto the site, an actual lock, um, a, a, a lock sign, a little, tiny little lock. Um, all of these things are key, but the HTTPS is really important to look out for. It's a it's one of the first ones you look at, and if it's not there, don't go there. It, it, it helps a lot. Uh, and the one other thing, just to mention, it, yes, um, Fran, yes. which is, um, again, come, staying with the rogues out there, a phenomenal amount of messages will be issued now uh, from, from, from bots and from all sorts of computers suggesting that they're coming from potentially maybe somebody you believe that you've created an order with. And it could be one of the big ones. I mean, it could be Amazon or anyone. And, mm. you know, these are constantly scammed. Um, so the, 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 the item is if you get a message, an email or a text, don't automatically answer it and certainly don't ever automatically click on the link. Go back to your own original order and see if there's any suggestion of a problem because 99 times out of 100, there's not. And I presume if you're investigating whatever product or service you want you want to buy, you'll be looking at all sorts of websites. That will generate, I suppose, a lot of interaction with you as well and that's where great care has to be taken. <laughs> You're entirely right. It will because you know if if, if you've accepted all 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 of the all of the terms and conditions, they'll be in yeah. contact with you for, for forever and a day. So you'll need to unsubscribe. But you you can you can take your time and do that if you've made the mistake. But this this is why yes, as I say, you become inundated and it becomes something of a blur, and that's when you make a mistake, a simple mistake, but it can cost you money. You really don't want to do that. Right, so these are all the precautions then, but I suppose to people out there who, you, you can get a bargain if, if you do your homework, I suppose, Dermot. You certainly can. Um, I mean, yours truly has done it um, on a number of occasions, and family have and friends. Yes, it works very, very well. You just need to be a little bit, um, um, I suppose, canny. If it looks too good to be true, then that's... Most of the time it is, but sometimes, as coming back to the item that they're really keen to get it out of stock, it could be at least half price. So, you know, see what's out there. See who else is selling it, because if, 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 you can usually ask, look, look and get a very quick price comparison on anything you're looking for. Um, and you, will, you, you can get good deals, there's no question. That's, that's the whole idea of this period of time. And the, the goal is to make everybody happy. And most importantly, um, it's an opportunity to sell you something at a good price that will make you come back next year and buy something at a bigger price. Dermot, it's always a pleasure and we appreciate your time on, on what is, I know, a very busy time for you indeed. Thanks, Dermot. Thank you. Pleasure. Take care. Thank I'll you. Bye-bye to you now. That's uh, Dermot Jewell there, who is Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of uh, Ireland. If you're planning to buy for Black Friday or if you bought, because God knows Black Friday 
is extended now for weeks beforehand. Um, if you have bought, did you get a bargain? Were you scammed? How do things go for you? Because we'd love to hear your stories on that. 083 311 Fran, I lived in America for years and what they're offering here as Black Friday is nothing like Black Friday in the UK. Everything is marked up here and then reduced um, to allow consumer, uh, consumers to think that they're getting a bargain. In the USA, Black Friday follows the day after Thanksgiving where you could buy, say, a TV uh, marked down from €1,000 to €100, Euro, says B. So there you go where that is concerned. Um, I brought you just a, a look at the front pages of the newspapers earlier on. But a couple of things in the papers today struck me as very strange and worth a mention. For instance... There's a story in the Daily Mail, a good few pages in, but it's telling us that a sniper in Ukraine has reportedly killed a Russian soldier and astonishing 2.36 miles away, claiming the record for the longest fatal shot in combat. And in the article, there's a sense of... I mean, maybe I'm reading it in, into it too much, but there's a, a, a sense of celebration in some way, about this this record. Without keeping in mind that the guy who was shot, whether he's Russian or whatever he is, do you know, he's probably a young man, probably has a family somewhere. The rifle used, where did that come from? I mean, did that come from the West in some way? Did it come from America? You know, is, is it a reason for celebration? I don't know. The other thing on a much less serious note... But it just galls me as well. Do you remember Dr. Luke O'Neill? He was one of the darlings of the pandemic. And he was on television every day. I mean, he almost rang the Angelus from time to time. He was on television so often. And then they gave him a guitar and allowed him to sing as well. But anyway, I digress. But he's in the newspapers today because he is advising Irish restaurants to ban salt from the premises. So you're going to have your fish and chips and because Luke O'Neill says so, no, we can't have salt because he said it's it's bad for our blood pressure, which it probably is, I don't know, probably is, but, but so is red wine and red meat and sugar and cream and desserts and butter and all. So will Luke be wanting all of those things banned in our restaurants? The other thing that's annoying the hell out of me today, and Pat brought you this, during news, and it's in our our newspapers. The Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, he's going to look for government approval today to deliver the Adair Bypass in time for the Ryder Cup in 2000, and, sorry, in 20, uh, what is it, 2027, which is a few years' time. So the reason behind um, pushing forward that bypass is because of the Ryder Cup, JP's, JP's thingy down there in association with his, his hotel and his, his golf club and all of that. I mean, really? So what about, I was talking to Councillor Anne-Marie Ryan yesterday and we were talking about a bypass of Tipperary Town, which is really, 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 really badly needed as well. And we're talking about at least 10 years away. So if you have a Ryder Cup coming up or if somebody is very wealthy and has a, a wonderful hotel in the area, um, does it get pushed along that? I don't know. What do you think about that? 083 311 3311.
Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Of the far right in Ireland, we're told, is growing as tech companies, particularly X, formerly known as. Twitter, uh, failed to enforce their own guidelines against misinformation and hate speech. Now, that's according to a wide-ranging study of Irish online communities. Now, Kevin is uh, one of our listeners and joins me now. Kevin, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Uh, good to talk to you today, Kevin. Um, is this of concern to you, Kevin? Yeah, I, I think it is. It probably should be concer- of concern to everyone. The report is quite interesting. It's from the Institute of uh, Strategic Dialogue. Um, and it just analyzes in an Irish context some of the spread of, of myths and disinformation. So it looked at about, I think, 13 million posts from about 1,600 accounts. So, like, it, the accounts that are involved are, are very prolific. If, you, if each of them kind of were active for the entire three year period that was analyzed, they were posting over seven times a day, every day, for, three, for over three years. So it's a high level of activity from kind of a small number of accounts. But they, like, the report kind of really comes down significantly in a couple of areas. One, social media companies aren't really doing enough to regulate this. Two, the state isn't doing enough to regulate it. And I think the third thing is we're totally ill-equipped to deal with the proliferation of this kind of myth and disinformation uh, in an Irish context. So um, while I I suppose a lot of people would be aware of larger social media companies like Twitter or Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever, or Meta, I guess, um, like there are smaller platforms as well that people are using to spread disinformation that people maybe wouldn't be as aware of, and um, places like Telegram and so on. And there's an issue with smaller social media platforms in that they're probably not well enough resourced to manage it themselves. But in addition to that, there seems to be kind of a total lack of will or a deliberate lack of will in some cases um, to, to deal with the issue. So it is concerning. I think we've seen its impact in a few, on a few occasions in Ireland um, in the last couple of years. You know, there was that uh, incident outside Leinster House very recently. There's been a number of attacks on uh, or, uh, uh, people working in, in libraries, pardon me, county libraries have been subject to a number of uh, abusive incidents um, connected to the spread of this online myth and disinformation. Um, so it is something we should be worried about it is something that we need to do something about and um, we're, we're not doing enough. That's really what the report has kind of highlighted. And Kevin, what about adjudicating what is disinformation and what is uh, misinformation? Because, I mean, you and I might adjudicate a commentary completely differently. Sure, and I look, I, I think that's fair enough too. Like, that, that happens. Actually, one of the recommendations from the report is that there needs to be further research and monitoring around this, and I think that they, they also highlighted the lack of the, an overarching policy that covers, that would cover smaller um, social media apps and social media platforms. So I think those things would emerge. But, like, you, you are talking about the proliferation of, like, very obviously... Um, false and misleading information that the report talks about. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the QAnon conspiracy that yes. emerged out of the United yes. States and so on, mm. and that Donald Trump was installed in order to tackle an elite cabal mm. pedophile ring operating worldwide. Like, So some of it's very, very obviously not the case. But as you say, like 
it, it, it's not necessarily immediately obvious to um, anyone who was looking at it. And I think that that's probably one of the areas that we need to tackle. Like, what is it, disinformation? What is misinformation? Uh, how do we recognise it? How do we challenge it? And so on. Yes. Like, you know, you, you'd see some stuff. And it's, it's used, in, in many cases, it's used to spread haste. Like, one of the common terms you probably, people would have probably come across in the last couple of years in Ireland is this idea of unvetted males and so on in, in, in the pursuit of kind of, racial hatred and so on so like that that kind of you, you we'd be familiar with some of the terms some of them but as you say you just wouldn't be aware mm. of all of them and so that kind of well-resourced well-informed correct group. me if i'm wrong kevin but just again misinformation is an accidental sort of uh, misleading piece whereas disinformation is a very deliberate intent to deceive am i right in that in that yeah that's basically it i think there is a bit more i think it can be misrepresentation of facts as well as is, is misinformation so there can be intent deliberate intent around misinformation uh, not always uh, but disinformation is deliberate it's, it's like it's mm. always deliberate and they know they know the, the people spreading it would know that what they're saying isn't the case um, but in, in misinformation, it's a little bit more complicated. I think it's false, misleading or manipulated content presented as fact, irrespective of an intent to deceive. So that's kind of how they yeah. find it in the report. I'd say one of the major difficulties around this, and to be honest with you, you know, Kevin, I don't fully understand how this works, but the algorithms. And I discovered this recently um, when I was checking into some of Trump's background. The fact that I was, say, on Twitter and looking back over various contributions to Twitter, all of a sudden then, I was landed with so much information um, about the subject that I was looking into. And it was all skewed one way then. And that's the way the algorithm works. Is that not at the essence of this problem? Certainly it's part of it. Um, and, and, and even beyond that, the report very clearly underlines that social media platforms aren't even enforcing their own rules when it comes to this. So, like, algorithms, and look, I won't pretend to be an expert in, in, in that specific, in that area either, but, like, you know, we've all had that experience where we talked about the need to buy something like a kitchen sink and every ad you get online for the next two weeks mm. is, is some kitchen sink or whatever else. Like, we've all kind of had a, a, an exposure to algorithmic um, presentation of, of um, content that we'd be kind of familiar with. But even where social media companies have identified um, best practice or codes of practice within their own platforms and said that this is allowed and this is not, they're not enforcing that. Um, so, like, it, there's on the one hand, there's the issue around, well, this person has indicated they like this kind of content, so let's send them as much of that as they can so they spend more time on our platform. Um, that's problematic in and of itself. But there's also the issue of, well, we, we ourselves have internally and externally recognised this as a problem and we're still not doing anything about it. And are there departments within, you know, some of these social media platforms whose job it would be to look at some of this? Or is that redundant? Or how, how does that work, for example? There is. Um, there's a signal, like, and, and some, some companies do quite a lot more on it than others. Um, you know, and I think in particular Meta had invested a lot in it when it, after the coverage of the influence its platforms had on the 2016 presidential election in the United States. Um, and so some companies are better. Like, for example, the report specifically identifies X or Twitter as being um, it's the platform where most of the activity that they analyse is, is taking place. So some companies are, or some areas are, are worse at it than others, but most have policies in place 
to say what is and isn't acceptable on their platforms, but it seems to be a universal enough issue that they're not enforcing that. And then with smaller org- platforms where maybe there you know, aren't as many people working for it, uh, there's a resource issue and they've identified a lack of a kind of national policy, for want of a better way of putting it, um, as being a problem there. So, yes, social media platforms themselves could be doing more, but also the state could and should be doing more. Now, in, in terms of conversation, though, I mean, one of the examples you gave to me earlier on, um, maybe about a conversation that could get out of hand, was the, the unvetted males, for example. Now, on this programme over the last couple of weeks, because we had issues here in Tipperary, I'm not sure if you're, you're across that, Kevin, um, but ordinary people who really don't have an axe to grind, but they did have issues and fears around the notion of unvetted males, or maybe males, large groups of males coming to a Tipperary town without us knowing fully about the background and stuff. Is that not a legitimate conversation to have, whether it's online or offline? I, th- I think a lot of, uh, I think frequently, especially around that area, people um, who have very negative intent will play off what they perceive to be or what they've identified yes. as. And, and will infiltrate some of those conversations, I guess. Yeah, and yeah. will deliberately uh, magnify anything that could be used to kind of promote or proliferate hate. And like, there, it's really, really important to kind of recognise that. But like, for example, like, I've walked to, through Tip Town several times without being vetted. Do you know, like, it, it, like it, it, the, the, the way that these things are framed and the way that these things are presented is designed to deliberately... And, like, are there individuals out there who have no ill intent, who kind of are like, oh, well, maybe I'm... You know, who, who have um, concerns for themselves? Sure, I guess there are, but there are behind that, there are a significant number of well-organised, well-resourced, mal-intended people who are deliberately trying to promote hate, whether that is uh, against people who aren't from Ireland, whether it's anti-Semitic, whether it's anti-LGBTQ, and often these things are actually intertwined. The report very clearly underscores that as well, that you will have people who are um, actually promoting, who, who are involved in promoting hate in a number of different areas. Right, so, um, so you use that by spreading mis- and disinformation. So your, your fear is people with genuine concerns who might go to inform themselves on something may be presented then with this kind of thing that you're talking about. Is that is that it? That that does often happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like you would have seen, you know, I I, um, I work up in up in Dublin, and you would have seen kind of around, especially when there was a number of Ukrainian refugees being settled, um, in a short space of time over the last couple of years. You would, you know, you'd hear about where people were going to settle in the local community, what impact that was going to be having. Um, you know, the military-age men thing kind of came up very frequently. And in those environments and in that where there's a lack of clarity on what's happening and so on, it's very easy for, for misinformation to spread. But it's also very easy for people who have, who deliberately want to spread mis- or disinformation to manipulate the situation and say, you know, that there's risks or whatever else. Um, so, like, it, it is, and um, the report also outlines this, that the complexity of it and the, the level of it is growing and expanding and so on. So it, it is important for, like, it's, it's difficult for an individual who's just going about their daily lives, and I think most people are just going about their daily lives, trying to do their best, uh, trying to get by mm. and trying to tackle mm. the, the everyday challenges that life presents. And... Um, so it's difficult to expect that every person would be totally aware of, you know, 
what is misinformation, what is disinformation. And I think that that's where the importance or significance of regulation comes in. I think to a degree, we need to be able to trust that, uh, I think people do trust that the information they're reading, whether it be online or in paper or whatever else, is accurate. Like there's proper systems in place to ensure that in most cases the information you're reading in the paper is in fact accurate. That regulation or that filtering process doesn't exist when it comes to posting online. Um, and I think if you, a, a lack of regulation by social media companies themselves, but by the state as well, has led to a position where mis and disinformation is spreading and proliferating and it is impacting what people think and what they believe and what they are willing to do. And we've seen that in a number of cases. Like it has real world negative consequences for the everyday people that we are talking about. Like you'll have seen that with the library issue um, in local authorities across the country. You have obviously, I think there was a number of videos of politicians being subjected to very abusive treatment outside Leinster House not so long ago. Like those things are happening. It's not just, you know, how people vote in presidential elections in the US um, that that's impacted by that. It's having an impact everywhere. Um, and it's having an impact here, and we need to be aware of that, and we need mm. to be careful and wary of that. And, and, and just finally, Kevin, um, not that I'm being pessimistic and cynical about this, but is the genie out of the bottle? I'm just wondering, I mean, how to control this at this point? I mean, it seems to have, you know, gone so large, I wonder if it can be contained. Well, the, the report actually does make, it makes four recommendations, all of which are posited towards improving the situation. Um, and like there are some, I mentioned there are some policies in place already in, in certain social media companies. I think better enforcement of their own regulatory processes um, or, or better enforcement of their own platform policies would be useful. The report says that. Um, and further research and monitoring, I think we could probably, you know, what I mentioned earlier, not everyone should be expected to be fully literate in this yeah. area. I think public awareness of the fact that this stuff happens would also be useful. So, like, there are a couple of, there are four recommendations in there. Each of them are useful. I think there is stuff that, there, there is work we can do um, to, to make sure that this is better addressed. I think it will always be there. It has always been there. Um, and, and that's a very unfortunate, you know, while I think most people are trying to get through I think most people are regular, decent people just trying to get through their day and trying to get, um, you know, to make whatever contribution um, they can. But there are just, all, there have always been actors out there who are willing to um, manipulate situations, who are willing to promote hate. I think that will always remain the case. But I think we can just do more to try and address that. Um, and I think that decency will probably win out, will win out at the end of the day. So I'd be quite optimistic about it. I think this report is helpful in that regard. Um, but, you know, it is a tough subject for a lot of people as well. All right. Kevin, really good to talk to you today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning to you. Bye-bye now. Um, 1800 938 007. The text and WhatsApp is 083 311 Kay was on to say, friend, I'm laughing at you over Luke O'Neill. And uh, what about when yourself and Muriel are speaking on Thursdays um, and on what's bad for us, including salt? So should we not listen to that? <laughs> well, you see, it's it's not that I'm saying that we shouldn't be aware of something being bad for us. But Kay, I mean, if you go in and you order your fish and chips and you'd say, well, you know, I'd like a little sprinkling of salt over that. And you discover, no, that's not allowed to you now because Luke O'Neill said so. So go on, eat up your fish and chips there without your salt and you'll be grand and stuff. Do you know, I think we need to make up our own mind on stuff. I mean, we can be made aware of 
when something's bad for us in, in, in large quantities or whatever, but there you go. Uh, Fran, I found many times when we discuss certain subjects at home, um, while our mobile phones are with us, shortly afterwards we get lots of ads relating to the subject discussed. Um, yeah, do you know, I had a conversation on, was it, uh, what, what night was Yeah, Sunday night, in fact, uh, down in Wexford. A friend of mine turned up at the gig and we were talking about this. And she is of the absolute belief, right or wrong, I don't know, that her phone is listening to her conversations for the very reason that you're saying. And she gave me examples, indeed, of conversations she's had with her her daughter. She seemed to believe it was picked up by her phone because ads arrived on the phone that was relevant to her her conversation. But uh, there you go. Um, Fran, there's a lot of things getting to you today. It's bad for your blood pressure. Uh, somebody else saying, you're not in a good mood today, Fran. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty okay today. Just, just it so happened that a couple of things uh, were bothering me that I saw in the newspapers. Anyway, we'll take a break. Back in just a tad. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer, Slattery's Garage Pecan. Yeah, this, this conversation around um, Dr. Luke O'Neill uh, advising us to to ban salt is taking off a bit. I know it's on our social media platforms at the moment as well. If you want to make your your opinions known to us, you know the notion behind it. He thinks that uh, restaurants should no longer have the salt cellar on the table. Funny enough, he, he made these remarks in reference to what's happening in Uruguay. And um, he said uh, they're a world leader when it comes to national policies on preventative health, according to the good professor. And he's thinking that we should follow uh, a suit with them. Is, is he taking into account, I wonder, that in Uruguay, there's huge levels of inequality, for example, huge issues with access to education, health care and other basic services as well. But they've banned salt, so that's fine. Former Cashel County Councillor Tom Wood um, made contact with all political parties and temporary Oireachtas members to be advised of any progress towards reinstating town councils and we spoke to Tom about this yesterday and of course he was particularly speaking about uh, the beautiful town of Cashel. He felt it necessary to ask these questions because needless to say local elections are happening in June. One of our listeners, John, was in touch with us about this and joins me now. John, good morning to you. How are you, friend? I'm very well indeed, John, and good to talk to you today. You think that the notion of town councils being abolished was a, a kind of a blessing in disguise? Well, uh, well, coming from the cashier side of things, yes. Because, why, um, John? Why? I'll tell, I'll tell you why. Because we didn't take off. Uh, probably the greatest thing that happened in relation to that also was the town council and cash had been abolished. But also we mustn't forget, at the prior to that we had also got the um, South Riding and North Riding County Council. Mm. And as you know, all of that was brought in under the one umbrella. Yes. So as a state of having two or three councillors fighting for us in our area, they would have to come outside of the pocket of North Tip and come down here and see if there could be of any help. Would you not agree? Well, you see, mo- most people involved in in the councils are telling me that that notion of unifying the, the, the North and South Riding hasn't worked out very well and it's, it's too cumbersome and it's too big an area, John. Well, it's very simple. I'm just taking cash. Mm. And I go back and I think of it. I saw so many opportunities of, of uh, employment in cash. And we had a case on many occasions where 
only able to get planning permission, objections, and everything else, and mm. the town council were of no benefit. Because if you look at the town council in Cashin, and the development that the, the, you can say they were worthy of would have been Dominic's Court and Lower Gate at the time. Mm. Mm. Well, if you look at those two areas, and especially Dominic's Court, and as you look from Dominic's Street up, that development is a nice sort in front of the Rock Castle. There was no talk put into it, and I wonder if the council. Well, well again, we don't we don't want to get into specific uh, areas of of the town, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, John. But are you saying to me that things have improved more in Cashel since the 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 town council has been disbanded? That's right, Jeff. I'll just yeah. give you a few a few things that occurred. First of all, um, you take the um, Cashel Palace and what it has meant to the town and the spin off to the business people of Cashel. There was an input there from a, a certain um, politician, national politician, into all of that. And that didn't come from South, North or South Riding. That came from North Riding. And I'm talking about Michael Lowry. He's been a major input into many things that have occurred in Cashel. We also have to look, when, when we abolish... Well, well it's, it's, cool, it's cool more money in, into Cashel that has been invested to huge advantage in the town, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Hmm. But there's your objection... Think of your objections that would have come if the town council was there. I want to bring you back um, your memory to some other thing, friend. If we've talked about progress, then go back then to Ray Callan, the Cashel Palace, and the team park. What mm. use of the town council then? They were divided themselves of whether it should be or not be, and to, and to denounce. Okay, but, 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 but let, me, let me ask you a question island. then, John. Do you think, for example, that if the town council was in place, the the Cashel Palace wouldn't be there in the successful manner that it is. Would you go so far as to say that? I would be worried, yes, very much would so. Would you? Wow. I would, and I tell you why, because with the town council and and this, and and the officials, there was a cosy cartel there. Now I hate using the law, but it was there. And ah, well, we 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 don't know that. though. No, that's you. That's your opinion. Well, talking from experience, but I leave it at that. Then, if you like. Mm. Now, just to go back to the town itself, mm. right, in fairness, the business people at Cashel are great. They, they grasp the nettles because, look at it this way, we have eating on the outside premises now. Mm. And I suppose I have to congratulate John and Miriam Curley mm. because they brought our fiscal eating into Cashel yeah. and many other premises done the same. The town is beautiful in that area. Mm. Look, at the, look at the work. Also, look at the work that is done by the tidy town. Mm. I mean, these people not being paid voluntarily, I think they should be rewarded in some way for what they do. Mm. Also, we have to look at this also. When the town council was there, our footpaths were in the first right? Mm. Now, also, we didn't have such a thing at that time as breaking the which we have now. Would you not agree from Well, yeah, we have, well, it's it's mainly. I mean, whether whether I agree with you or not doesn't mean matter. I'm just delighted to hear your particular take on 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 this, John. So, yes, it, it's very, it's very interesting that you say that because I mean, one of the criticisms of not having a town council is that we don't have access to budgets in the same way and we can't have the same influence in terms. Of, but but you're saying that's a lot of nonsense, obviously. It is because every time. That it came up about the issue of cash and I wasn't thrown at him from, from in the community council when there was strikes in the ring. You never know, 
There was no objection. I didn't have the council here objection to it. Uh, the town council objection to it. That's number one. But to finish what I'm saying, the good work that has been done, as I say, now that the council, the, one to, the town council at the time, when it came to good pass and that, they were very lacking, right? Mm. Now we have a local contractor, Lee Mayer, who's doing all the work in relation to good pass and that. And it has given a great lift to the town. The man is mm. in and out. And I think to the credit that at least he's given that opportunity. Mm. You take tourism and how well we have progressed in that area. Also, Cran, we have people talking about roundabouts and door gates there one or two years ago. They weren't happy that there would be collisions and everything else. Yeah. And yet, now people will tell you it's the best thing that ever went on. Is that the one from the main street up to up to Fire Street there and up to Lady no, as well? No, up to Gore Clark. Up four o'clock. Oh, four o'clock. Yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and John, do you know, I have to hold my hands up here and say, I thought that that wouldn't work, to be honest with you. I thought it was too complicated, but it seems to be working out fine. Now, can I just give you one other instance here, Fran? Yeah. Now, you spoke there about Tom Wood. Mm. I have great admiration for Tom Wood mm. because he's a cashier man out and out, and he'll only do anything, that, he'll do everything in his power to see the cashier gets the fair crack at the whip. Yeah. I want to make that very clear, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, after saying that, we walk to the clear road. And as you go up there by um, Oliver Plunkett there. Yes. And you start the major road works that have taken place there. Mm. Now, mm. people were critical that the roadway there was too narrow. Mm. Now, I want to bring something to people's attention. Normally, when you come out of the co-op up there or out of any of the supermarkets, as you come out, there was traffic, cars passed on both sides of the road, and you were basically on the main thoroughfare before you got out with the possibility of, of being uh, swiped off the road. Mm. Now you can go up and drive in and drive out. You have a clear view 100 yards up and 100 yards down. Surely that's progress. But, but the parking outside of um, St. Patrick's Hospital, John, wasn't that okay because there was, there was a parking bay there, essentially, was there not? Well, see, the problem there is I saw an accident there a good few years ago of a young man being hit with a car. Mm. He came out from between the traffic and the person driving the vehicle at the time didn't see the child until he was in front of the car. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you think that's a good thing, John, that there's no longer parking on that stretch? I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. as I said, the, the whole, I mean, everything is done... But, town is done very well. You, you need only to come into the town of Cashley on the summer. And look at the amount of people on the street. Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic. Fantastic. has done. There's many things that we need to develop as well. Right. But I have to say, uh, but I'm not going to, I know you're coming up at 10 o'clock, but mm. I just want to bring one other thing under the, the, the old town council, right? Yeah. And the sad thing was, you had to, to, to develop the motel and there was to be shadows and a hotel above the old motel. Mm-hmm. That was a kink. That was done away with. We saw what town council's done for our ladies hospital. Now we have to look at St. Patrick's hospital and wonder is that split in a way nice and handy now? You know, so there's a lot of things that we thought into, but what I would like to see before I leave you, friend, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. No problem, John. But yeah. I would, I would love to see the casual could elect its own um, Lord Mayor. Because when you think the history of Cashel and what it stands for, 
and the government for this 12, 12 point of this 59 was to we, we uh, came into governance ourselves. Yeah. That's a long time. And in that period of time, we had what was known as, as the Lord Mayor, with all his uh, paranalia, right? And also, I want to bring to people's attention, there's so much history in Cashel that has never been spoken about because um, it was passed down from generation to generation. Mm. And to just give you an idea, my late father was be good to him, right, friend? Yes. The court case took place. Not mention anything legally in this one, but court case, court case took place in the sizes in Nina. My father was asked to go as a witness because he's not his local knowledge of the history of Cashel. And my father was in a wheelchair at the time. The man that drove the car was Tommy Rogan. He took us over to the court. Mm. When I went into the court with my father, and we were sitting at the back, and I had to wheel my father up to, to make his case, there was a barrister above. And he questioned my father, and he was attacking my father. He didn't have his back. And the judge turned around, and he said to the barrister, he said, I've heard enough of you, he said. I'm more interested in what Mr. O'Byrne has to say, he said, because I think this man has a history that we should listen to. They listened to what my father had to say in concerning the matter. And he went back over generations to tell him how it was there and what wasn't there and where the right away was. Well, I, I, I'd love, I'd love, I'd love to have heard that. Uh, John, I could continue this conversation with you all day. I'm so sorry I have to go to news. But, John, it's only now I realise who I'm talking to. And I knew your no. dad. And I knew your dad very well, of course, as well, John. That's right. I'd like to go back to Listen, Frank, I love to have a conversation with you sometime. I'd, I'd look forward to it, John. And you take care of you and my best to your family as well. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Bye-bye to you now. Uh, John, speak to us there from Cash News and Information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome along to the second hour of Tip Today. Uh, keep those calls coming into uh, Emma. It's a free phone number, of course. Uh, 1800 938 07. The text and WhatsApp is 083-311-3311. Now we'll be playing the Tip FM Match 3 game at some point or other. So if you want to register, now is your time to do so. Just give us your name and your details. And if you put Match 3 at the end of your uh, contribution, we'll pop you in to the draw. It's as simple as that. As well as that, to celebrate uh, the Talbot Hotel in Clanmel Winter Wedding Viewing Day, which is happening next Saturday between 11am and 4pm. We'll have a lovely prize to give away um, to you by way of celebration of that they're giving us a, fist, a festive afternoon tea for two in their newly renovated and beautiful wheat bar and bistro there so I'll tell you how you can get involved in that competition we'll have a little question for you just after a while John O'Shea is best known I suppose for his involvement with uh, Tipperary GAA but in a previous life he was a senior guard who worked for many many years indeed in uh, immigration and I'm delighted to say that he joins me in studio good morning to you John. Morning, Fran. And thanks so much for coming in to us uh, today. Would you take us back to when you first got involved with uh, the immigration department, I suppose? It, it was known as the Aliens Office at that point, was it? Yeah, that's correct, Fran. Uh, I think to around 1982 I became involved in it. And it was known as the... We worked in the Aliens Office because <clears throat> that wasn't a sort of a, the term 
you know, probably would be frowned on now. But the legislation defined anyone uh, who wasn't a citizen, basically, of Ireland as an alien. And that went back to prior to the, the, our, our independence. And I suppose... Uh, around 1914 there, and you know, the war was starting at the time, there was an uh, there was a alien act brought in in England, and 1918 there was another one, <clears throat> and then it was amended in 1920 because to control, I suppose, workers after the war and yes. people coming into the UK, and the UK and Ireland, you see, because we were still the one at the time, <clears throat> and then we got our independence, you know, and I suppose the first thing the government had to do was to bring in uh, legislation, and as they, they brought in uh, legislation, I think they called it the Adapting of of uh, enactment act, which meant that legislation that was in during the UK uh, rule was carried over until such time as the government or the legislature of the day, you know, brought in their own yes. legislations. So then the first thing, I suppose, 1925 would probably be in the first aliens order, and that was for the control of aliens. And they defined an alien then as anyone who wasn't a citizen of Seastart Aden, which certain. And but there was and uh, uh, there was a uh, th- that also took in uh, citizens of Northern Ireland and the UK and the, and the they UK. were exemptions right. and then it brought us on to well anybody from from mainland Europe at the time would have been seen as being an oh alien. The, the would yeah. Yeah. and if you were if you, you know would of course yeah and that brought yeah. us up then to 1935 and there was a huge piece of legislation come in the Aliens Act of 1935 and I suppose a unique thing about that was there was a section in it that gave. Uh, power to the Minister for Justice to bring in uh, ministerial orders instead of primary legislation that it didn't have to go through the houses of the Oireachtas it didn't have to be signed by the President and that legislation was the base legislation right up to I'd say it was about 1999 when it was struck down so it lasted all that length right, of time right. and, and it was challenged at that point it then, was challenged it? at that yeah. time because you see the, 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 the the orders then, there was a huge, uh, the aliens orders of 1946 was the first big thing under that act. Now, and if you're, you know what 1946 was, the end of the war. Yes, of course. So there's always a reason for legislation. And this was to control, again, aliens in the country and their movement. And it brought in, at a time, uh, hotels and guest houses and lodging houses had to keep a register of people. So that's why when you go to a hotel and you register... That's why. That goes back to that. That's what that's about. And wow. an immigration mm-hmm. officer or a Garda had the power, and still have the power, to inspect those registers. And if the hotels don't comply with it, they're committing an offence. Right. And so, they, they don't need a judicial order to do that, no, do they? They no. have the power to it, do that. And it. you can do without a, without a, without warrant or anything. Yes. And that goes back to the Aliens Orders of forty six, And it actually gave uh, covered deportations. It covered... Uh, refusing people leave to land because when a person arrives at, at the frontier, Dublin airport, a, po- uh, a shipping port, he's met by an immigration officer. But they weren't in, in Dublin port or Dunleary because up to 1999, 98, I'm not sure now, mm. you couldn't emigrate pe- people coming from the UK or Northern Ireland. And I suppose various ministers at the time, you know, said it might have. Issues with the common travel area yes. and the whole lot. But anyway, eventually that happened. But to go back along anyway, that aliens order came right up along. There was no uh, specific legislation dealing with uh, asylum applicants as they were known at the time because it really wasn't a problem. Mm. 
and it was dealt with by just general way and 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 take for example I'd say in 1992, I think there was about 39 asylum applicants in the state. Right. So when you started in the 1980s, it was in the 1980s. Yeah, This was not a big issue. There was no, it wasn't an issue. The only thing we were dealing with that time, there was, I think, six or seven or eight of us maybe in Dublin. We covered the whole Dublin area. And... uh, we were part of the of the of the detective branch that was in Dublin Castle and later Harcourt Square, and um, we dealt really with, I suppose, the spouses of Irish nationals. Mm. We dealt with um, people on work permits and mostly foreign students. And there was a huge amount of students coming in that time to the College of Surgeons and places like that. Yes. There was no English language schools at the time, mm. but there was also uh, schemes. I remember probably the mid-80s, there was people from, uh, I think was it uh, one of the African countries, mm. and they came to train with the ESB for six months as linesmen or something like that <laughs> for the various uh, uh, countries in Africa so, yes, so they yeah. could go back and bring the electricity. Bring, bring those skills. You know, that, that's them, the yeah. type of stuff like that you'd be dealing with. So when, when did it change, John? It when, changed, when did the it, did the issues start to Okay, arise? I suppose there's a reason again for everything. It changed really after, if you notice, around uh, 89, we had the fall of Ceausescu in mm. Romania. Mm. We had the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the breakup of the Soviet Union, mm. the breakup of Yugoslavia, you know, the early mm. 90s. So Eastern Europe yes. influence. And yes. also, at that time, there was, I suppose, the advent of cheaper travel. Mm. Mm. That had a had a had a thing, but Eastern Europe came. But I suppose prior to that, uh, I think it was in 1956, there was 500 Hungarians brought into Ireland. Now, but they were brought in and dealt with by the Red Cross, mm. and I think they were they were they were they were put into disused barracks down around the west of Ireland. So far. But they only stayed for 12 months. They went on to Canada. Right. Then we brought in after that. You, you, the people, the Vietnamese. Remember, they were referred to as the boat people. Mm. Mm. They were in. But they mm. were dealt, they were managed and dealt with by the Red mm. Cross, and there was no, really, the Department of Justice had no records of them. Right. So, and the state had no obligation, I suppose. Where, where yeah, they, they, were they done it through the Red Cross, and they were yes. housed, and they were looked after, and so, all that. So, to go then, so the influence of Eastern Europe—that was the start, was it, of the numbers? It was, yeah. And yes. like as I said, around 80, uh, 92, 93, about thirty. I think it was 39. Then they started gradually coming up along and they, the, the influx of them came and they were dealt with to the sort of an ad hoc thing. And But the Refugee Act came in in 1996 mm. and that put it on a legislative basis. Yes. How to deal with them, how to handle them. Right. But and, and help us to understand now, at that time, were we obliged to have those people? Were we obliged to look after them? Yes, because we were signatories and we are still after the Geneva Convention. Okay. And that is the thing. We are obliged, and we're still obliged to this day, when a person presents at the frontier or within the state and seeks protection, as they call it now, because fast forward to 2015, the International Protection Act more or less revoked the previous... Uh, legislation dealing with with asylum applicants, but we are definitely and the people that says that we can't or we can kick right. them back to to, to use a and, of, and again, would you answer all the usual questions that occur around this? If if for instance they presented themselves to you at that point and they had no documentation, John, yes. what what was the story there? You have got to take their application for protection or for asylum. That is anyway. That is, anyway, now it's actually. In there now, that can happen in the state, or it can happen 
at the frontier of the state. Let it be the land border with Northern Ireland, mm. Dublin Airport, Cork Airport, the ports. The, the ports, yes. Anywhere they apply, they, they look. That, uh, now, in practice, it's not taken there and then. They are sent to Dublin to the, 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 the International Protection Office. It used to be the Office of the Refugee Applications Commission yes. down in Mount Street. Mm. And... Um, Mm. You have to deal with them. You have okay, to deal with them. so we're obliged to take them in. What other obligations are on us then in terms of how they're looked after? Oh, yes, you have to, you have to look you after them. You have to look them. after yeah. them. Okay. Now, I suppose that for, for people, say, I'll, I'll give you an example. Somebody comes in, comes, in on a, comes into Dublin Airport, and you know yourself you're coming back from holidays. You get off the, if you get, off, get on a Ryanair flight or get off it, you're probably bust in, and then you walk that long corridor there in Terminal 1 up along, best part of a quarter of a mile maybe, and you arrive at the... But you arrive at the, the frontier, which is the 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 the, the, the passport control mm, office. Yes. And the guy walks up there, and the immigration officer will say to him, uh, wh- "Where'd you come from?" I don't know. Okay, then there's a problem. Could I see your documents, please? I, I don't have any. Now you, you you hear people saying then on social media and all that crap, kick them back. Mm. Well, where, first of all, where do you kick them back to and kick in inverted commas? Well, do you not put them back to where they got the flight from? How do you know what flight they came in on? Well... Because when you come in there, that bottom door off the tarmac below in, 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 in Terminal 1, there's flights coming in from everywhere, and there's three and four and five flights in together. Right. So how do, the, how do you know what flight they came on? The only way to counteract that then is to emigrate people at the door of the plane. Right. At least you know where they came from. At that point. But yes. the problem now is that the Dublin, the old Dublin Convention was more or less revoked by the International Protection Act of 35. So you don't send them back to the first country because of we know what happened there out in the Mediterranean there a few years ago to people and, and Eastern Europe and Austria and all that and they were walking across it. So that's more or less sending them back to the first country is a sort of uh, more or less. Right. So people getting very annoyed about that then, John. That's just the way it is. is that now, and like, I, I wouldn't be a political person at all, but blaming the Minister for Justice for that, or whoever it may be, him or her, is not, uh, is not on. That's gaining scoring political points. And, and that the immigration officer, he has got to take that application. And the problem then, you, you come down along the line, Fran, and as I said, there was just two strands. There's immigration and there's international protection. Now, they fuse together at some point where if a person is granted international protection, he's defined as a refugee, he's allowed to stay here or her. So that becomes an immigration issue then for registration and the whole lot. If it goes the opposite way that he's denied um, international protection and subsequent deportation order is signed, it also becomes an immigration offer then, uh, an immigration matter then, in order to remove that person who is the subject of a deportation order. And then <clears throat> the problem starts, because if we fast go backwards to the guy that comes in at Dublin Airport and he has no documents and he don't know where he came from. So where do you deport him to? So all the fact that Helen McEntee is getting at the moment in terms of, you know, those people who have been told to remove themselves from the country and they choose not to do so, you can understand to some degree. Can I can, you? of course. And the thing about it is that it's part of the thing when they're told to remove themselves because it's part of the letter. Like, before a deportation order is signed, there's a huge amount of, of strands to go through. Huge amounts. So eventually the person gets the letter. 
and a copy of the deportation order enclosed to his last known address, or hers, and he's told to remove himself from the country. <coughs> this is the letter. Remove himself from the country uh, and to stay out of the country. That's the first. But also the, the deportation order is there, which can be which can be enacted straight away. He can be arrested straight away for the purpose of removal, but can only be held for 56 days. So the person who is the subject of the deportation order, where do you deport him to? Now, where did he come from? Yeah. He has no documents. You cannot put anybody on a plane at Dublin Airport unless he's in, unless he's in possession of documents that are uh, valid in the country of destination. But to get on the plane in the first place, he would have had to have had documentation. Correct, coming in. Yes. Uh, if, most likely, but not all, in all cases, there would be, uh, there would be uh, fake documents. Right, that got him on because the plane. Because most, most <coughs> airline people, they're not, uh, you know, they're not document experts. Mm. So you know when you're checking in at, a, at you, you, you're coming back from, from Amsterdam, you check in at the Aer Lingus desk or the Ryanair desk, you, you, you have your boarding card and your passport. Mm. <clears throat> you show the passport to the girl there, or the man as the case may be, and your name is on it, Fran Corrie, that's on the boarding card, and your photograph is there, and you look like Fran Corrie, or you look like the guy in the photograph. Mm. And it seems to be a valid passport. And you get on the plane. But then the problem is that that passport is probably, there's probably someone else, there's probably more mm. than one in that mm. case, and the passports are collected on board a plane by an individual who is legal. Mm. Or they may be flushed down the toilet, or they may be torn up, or they may be... But when they arrive at the immigration mm. desk at Dublin Airport... They don't have them, and that's the problem. Harry, and the other problem is, you know, my mind is boggled by this. So, the the notion of vetting any of these people to know if they had a criminal past or whatever, that's impossible then. But the point is, Fran, once somebody claims asylum or international protection, you, the Irish authorities cannot contact, if they say they're from, I'm going to pick a country now, if they say they're from Botswana, mm. the Irish authorities cannot contact the Botswanan authorities because the person who is seeking protection is fleeing from the regime there. So they cannot be told... So legally they can't be investigated? No, no, no. You see, you can't. Until such time as they're probably granted asylum or that way, but... Or if they refuse asylum, then, you see, it means that they don't come under the definition of a refugee. <coughs> right. Now, now to explain that to me. How can they be refused asylum? Oh, and, and, and because they've basically they've found that the, the, the information that they're are claiming, or the, what they're claiming to be, is, is false. But, but, I mean, if that can't be investigated... You see, incidents can be... You see, the, the people in the International Protection Office, they have, uh, I suppose, they have databases and all, and, you know... There, there, there's usually a specific incident that, that applicants will bring up that on such and such a date or they were the subject of... Oh, right. This is the reason for the seeking reason, protection. See, the, the, the reason why they're seeking protection okay. here in Ireland is something happened in their home country. And do they have to give a reason? 
they do because it, it's it's in the law. You know, it could right. be sexual orientation, it could be religion, it could okay. be. So, are the authorities allowed to check that out? Oh yes, they would. You see, say if somebody said there was a protest in such a city, such a town, on, roughly in in. Uh, August of 2020. Right, in the capital of yeah. Botswana or wherever. Yeah. And yes. then, you know, through modern intervention now, they can find out, did this protest take place? Mm. So you have to try and find out, is the people... Um, Are they legitimate yes. in some way in now, terms of... The, a lot of people use... Um, use um, lately, mm. some countries now have, have um, would say, gays and lesbians... It's an offence to be, mm, you know. Yes, so yeah. they use that now as a as a reason as to a seek reason protection. For, yes. Now, whether because it's true or not, I don't know. But somebody yes. has to decide whether their whether their application is valid or not. What about fingerprinting and DNA? And yes, fingerprinting is is taken up now and stored, and that tells tells the authorities if they claimed asylum. will say in another EU state. Right. Because their fingerprints, they're all linked up. Right. And everybody who comes in to the country and seeks protection, are they fingerprinted? They are fingerprinted, yes. As part of the the application. Right. I'll bet you're not exactly envious of your colleagues doing the job that you used to do now. Well, we used to do the actual uh, asylum applications as such. We'd done a few in the early days. But uh, as I said, it was the Office of the Refugee Applications Commissioner was set up Right. But I mean, when you look at what's happening now, it's it's kind of chaotic. Isn't it, it is chaotic. And I suppose I was involved in the latter years <coughs> and my colleagues, we were, because the National Immigration Bureau was set up in, I think it was 2000, uh, to deal with all uh, matters pertaining to immigration. And I suppose the main thing was uh, executing deportation orders, finding people and deporting them. <coughs> but as I said, where do you deport them to? So I spend a lot of time uh, dealing with embassies, uh, foreign embassies in London, trying to establish uh, who these people were and to get documents to take them back to their country. Because mostly, if you go through Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe have, you know, they operate a national identity card. And the national identity card is issued based on their uh, birth certificate. And the passport then is issued based on the national identity card. Okay. And lots of those cards there, they would be probably either 11, 13 or 15 digit numbers, long, long numbers. And that pinpoints the individual. So if you had a national identity card for a person, you would very easily get a travel document issued by their embassy, let it be in Dublin or let it be in London or whatever, and you put them, you take them back to that country, the country of origin. Now, there's also a problem then, if you have all the documents... And it is up to the airline captain whether he will take them or not. Because he might decide they're unruly. The person becomes unruly on a plane. There's no captain going to take on board. Mm. You know, and you can't restrain them, you see. This is the problem. Legally. Yeah, you can't restrain them. And the captain won't allow you to restrain them because he's in charge of his of his flight of his ship or his plane. Same way on, on, on now it's probably slightly different on on a on a, on a ship <coughs> because there was a, like there was a holding cells on, on ships you know there are yes of course can, can, just before I let you go John can I just ask with with your vast experiences of this and looking at the situation the way it is here and knowing about the unrest for instance in Ross Gray and the difficulties in cash and all of these places as well 
What would you do now? What If you were to give advice to the authorities and to the minister and all, what would you say? I suppose the big thing is, does manpower needed? That's number one. Resources. All those resources are under-resourced. And I know the, the National Immigration Bureau, it's like all sections of the Garda Shikana, they're under-resourced at the moment. And there are people leaving the National Immigration Bureau. And I know six or seven left in the last couple of months, and they are actually gone to work in the International Protection Office. You know, so I mean, like, because conditions are better. That's amazing. That's it. I was I was talking to a couple of guys yesterday, and uh, uh, that's amazing. That, that is, I know of I know of six guys. There were younger guys now there when I was when I left, or only after coming into the place, and they are, they have the best part of seventeen or eighteen years experience. That's gone out. To, uh, gone so out the experience to is gone. Yeah. Now, oh the, the, the other thing is. Um, I suppose, as, as, you see, the National Immigration Bureau is part of the Garda Corner. Yes. It's a branch of it. And, but the guys dealing with immigration will say in Clanmel or, or care, <coughs> there's, an, there's an immigration man in each of the districts around the country, but they really only deal with the registration of, I suppose, for the want of a better word, the legal people living here, mm. you know. There's an awful lot of spouses of EU nationals yeah, now, yeah, spouses of, course, of yeah. Irish nationals, because the way the world is gone now, there's, there's, you know, mm, mm. there's a lot of... And the and, uh, funny thing about it, I was talking early on, in the early days, a female spouse of an Irish national was treated different than the male spouse of an Irish national under, under, under the serious? aliens' legislation. Funny, wow. because the female spouse was sort of nearly deemed to be the chattel of the male. Right. And How that the male changed. looked after, that she was probably incapable of working or incapable of looking after. You know, well, that's the, how she was perceived, yeah. yeah. That was yeah. How, and it was perceived God. in law, and that only changed in, the, in 2004, in the Immigration Act of 2004. Isn't that amazing? Because... That um, amazing. I'll, bet, I'll bet you're glad you're, you're not involved. Oh, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, yeah. like, I, you, you know, you have to give, uh, as I said, uh, you have to give credence to... You cannot deport anyone yes. unless they have documents. And there's no point in saying right. they came in about it. But John, wouldn't it be better if the government, or if the minister, if Minister McInerney, or whoever came out and explained this properly? Yeah, they don't. That's people. the problem. And that, that creates fear. It then does. It's <coughs> annoyance. And yeah. There's a huge, I suppose, since the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Yeah. there's a huge amount, I think there's probably about 85,000 uh, yeah. Ukrainians here. Yeah. Now they are tre they are different. Yeah. Because they have temporary protection. Now the government had a choice on that. They could have put a number on that, where they have no choice with international protection applications under the, applying under the Geneva Convention. They have to be looked after. They have to be housed somewhere. They have to be go through the most. But they could have put numbers. They could have put a cap on that. They could have put a cap on that. And that's probably what's annoying people. It is. Uh, yeah. And yeah. they never explain the difference between an international protection applicant and a refugee. Yes, because people are confused. Programme refugees, refugees, asylum seekers, yeah, international yeah. protection applicants. Yeah. People, there's confusion. They are confused. confused. And the problem is that they changed the term from asylum applicant to an international protect, uh, protection applicant in, under, in 2015. Right. But Older people still call him asylum. Of course they do indeed. John, I must leave you there, but most informative. And thank you so much for your time today. Really good of you to come into yeah, us. No thanks, problem, thanks, John. John O'Shea with me uh, this morning. We'll take a break. We're back with more in just a moment. 
Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie All right, very, very positive reaction to John O'Shea's piece with me there. Um, speaking about his uh, time, I suppose, working with uh, immigration, working with refugees and asylum seekers and uh, all of that. And thank you for that uh, response. Uh, something completely different now. Glad to be joined as usual by Karen Prendergast, who is our interior designer. Good morning to you, Karen. Good morning, Brian. Uh, it's good to talk to you today. Um, interesting one today, how to make the feel of the house a bit better. What, what do you mean when you speak about that? Well, I think... Uh, this, I, I, I'll tell you um, wh- how I feel. So I'm talking today about seven ways to improve the feel of your house. Mm. But I was sitting outside and I was listening to the last um, gentleman while John, on yeah. your chat with him. And, and, you know, I was thinking about my own house. So my own house, my, my house, what's the most important things for me in my house? Now, that's letting aside what I'm going to have a chat about as well today. It's an add-on, really. Mm. So for me, it's <clears throat> thinking about this time of the year, the heating. First of all, how does my house work for me? Mm. Okay, how easy is it to run? How, how how easy is it to get around? So for me, the heating's really important. The lighting is really important. My kitchen's important because I do quite a bit of cooking. I, both of us like cooking. So how I how I'm able to get around my kitchen that it works for me ergonomically. Mm. Okay, um, as I said, the heating's probably the most important thing for me because I'm always cold. The heating, the lighting, how I get around my kitchen, the position of my um, washing machine and dryer um, are important that they're easy to get at and easy to work and also what's very important for me is that I have plenty of freezer space in my house so this is mad mm. but for me it matters because um, I use the freezer a lot so I'll buy bulk buy my meat and bulk buy different things and my bread and the whole lot and I'll have them in the freezer and I'll use that so I need quite a lot of freezer space in the house that's not in the shed that when it's the winter time that I'm not in and out to the shed because funny enough I was on a couple of jobs last week and um <clears throat> This time of the year, a lot of people are worried if they are going out the back to the washing machine or the dryer or the line or the freezer or whatever, or getting coal and uh, different stuff in for the fire, that it's safe out there, that they're not going to get a fall and slip and end up hurt. So when you're planning your house, and every week we're talking about all the beautiful things in the house and the whole lot, but what makes a house work really Mm, well? Practical. It's it's to be practical and that it works for the people in the house and again you know we talk about storage and we talk about keeping the place neat and tidy that's easy to get at things and um, as people get older or if there's certain illnesses in the house or whatever mm. ergonomics and work in the house um, safely for us all is really important And should you think ahead Karen because I mean you know if you're 30 years of age you'd be able to sprint out to, to your utility room if it's out the back somewhere but that's different if and, you're, and if you're I'd, 70 I'd, or 80 I'd, I'd agree with that now and I'm, yeah. in, I'm in my mid 50s and you know when I was 30 and building my first house I was absolutely invincible Yeah, yeah. and nothing yeah. mattered and then you know I had an illness some years ago and absolutely perfect now 100% but when I came to do this house which is going to be my last house not moving again um, there was a lot of things that I made sure that going forward that were there and that I wouldn't have to spend Right. Okay. and so planning was really yes. important for now and for the future yeah. and again when we're talking about that we're talking about again I said planning kitchens planning bathrooms um, maybe a lot of people don't want exactly a wet room because they might find it hard to keep I was in one house last week and they were saying to me they have a wet room gone in and you know they have the, they don't have a shower door but they have the curtain mm. find it hard enough because the water you know mm. goes mm. around the place but you can have a wet room of a different sort and in time to come 
if you wanted to, you could take down maybe one door or whatever. So I think forward planning, budgeting, spending your money right. So this is the things I'm talking about mm. are are the basics that you need in the house. But the, when you're doing them in the first case, that it's the you're spending the money now and you won't have to redo it again. Yes. Yeah, you might have yeah. to revamp, but you won't have to do the whole lot again. So they're the kind of things for me that are very important in my house to make it work better for me. Right. Okay. But today I made a mood board and I brought in some new colours as well. So maybe if people have pens and paper before we finish up, I'll run through some new colours as well. You see, I thought when you talked about <coughs> the, the when you spoke about the feel of that, you were talking about the mood. That and I am, and we're going to that. come to the mood yes. now. We're going to do all that. But I suppose I wanted to just give my speak first for mm, my yeah. house and what I feel that I'm meeting when I'm going into other people's houses, and while they might bring me to do the pretty things in the interior design, or we could be knocking, you know, a half a house or whatever it's always to be practical yes when you're doing anything in your home that it works for you and it's practical in the long term mm. and I should have given you notice of this but what is the big mistake what, what is the mistake that you see happening time and time again uh, is, is it not planning is it, it not? it's not planning and a lot of the time it's buying furniture that's too big for the too home yeah. um, it's maybe um, you know what the biggest problem is friend that I see it's overspending it's overspending and ending overspending. overspending and ending up with something that they didn't think out enough. Okay. So that might be, you know, rushing into a kitchen, rushing into buying furniture, rushing into something and they make an error and then I'm called to fix the error. And I will do my best to fix the error. But I think planning and budget and planning and budget, I can never, ever say it enough. And buying mm. items of furniture that suit you. And when you're planning a kitchen or a bathroom to put enough thought into it and when you're going into a kitchen showroom or a bathroom showroom or even a furniture showroom if if you bring your sizes and your measurements and you truthfully talk to the salesperson they will help you but if you don't ask for the help yes they can't read your mind but is the danger not, and I've seen this myself, Karen, you go into these beautiful showrooms and something looks absolutely stunning and you can't not have it. But you're not taking into account that it's not that space it's going to be in. Exactly. And, as, you know, and that's very true. And I see that all the time. But And also there's, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm allowed to say this, but look, I'm going into all different shops and like credit is readily available in so many different walks of home improvements now. So you can get carried away sometimes. Okay. And it's it's and again I'm talking about the budget, but I'm really talking about do is that the suite of furniture you want or is that the kitchen you want? And just because you might be getting it on the never never never, never as we'd yes. say years ago, mightn't be exactly what you want. So when you are spending money right. spend very, it wisely. Very good advice. Now mood then. So the things in your house have the ability to influence your state of mind since it is the main place that you feel in control. So your home is the spot to rest. It gives you, it's where you live, work, play, engage in many of your favourite activities. So I think it's wise to consider uh, investing in the measures that facilitate these activities with ease and positively impact your mental state even though we're talking about interior design. So it's important to think about how you're using your spaces. Make sure that the, the items that you're buying are giving you the feel 
and the ambience that you want in your house. Mm-hmm. We, we speak about this and often with interior design, we duplicate what we said last week or the week before. We said that before, but we're saying it in a different way. So it is important that you love the spaces that you have and arrange the house mm. uh, to suit your needs. Yeah, so ticking a box on the basis of what the current fashion is mightn't be the right thing for you. It mightn't be the right thing or you could be taking an item or a part of the current fashion that you love and building that into your home okay. that's already existing. So um, arranging bookshelves. Mm. I have bookshelves. I, I love bookshelves. Love bookshelves. I've only got one. I used to have two. I've only got one now. I've downsized. But my bookshelf, I have a picture of a nice... Um, this is on our, nice, on our mood board here again. Board we're, we're going to put this up again this we'll week, put aren't this up we? Again. Yes, so a nice, simple, a nice, simple um, bookshelf. But mm. it has a picture in it. It has a little picture. It has little ornaments in it. It has books standing up. Then it has books sitting down. Then maybe we have a little fake planter, one or two bits on top of it. So that bookshelf, I would say, would you say, it looks neat and tidy, but it tells a story. I think it does. It certainly tells a story of the people who are in the house. Are people yes. who are in the house. And I find in my bookshelf, I might have, um, my husband fishes, so I have a couple of pictures of him up. Um, uh, I have some uh, fake plants in a planter and a lo- my bookshelf and my shelves in my kitchen because I don't have top presses tell a story about my travels Yeah, and a lot of what I hope yeah. is, 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 is things that's that I got lovely. in other countries but they have to match in in the and, design too and I was going to ask you about that what, what do you say to somebody and I won't name names but I could who would see bookshelves as being dust holders and always looking untidy in a house and maybe taking away from the general look of if things I, if I, go I could in, name names. If I, go, <laughs> if I go into a house and I see a bookshelf, I am never, ever, ever going to take that bookshelf off him. Or I'm never going to say that he shouldn't have it because I know that person's into books. Um, there'll be books on that bookshelf that tell stories from different parts of their lives and there's reasons why they bought them. I'm into cookery books. Um, I was in Dublin two weeks ago and um, I saw this real quirky shop and there was this beautiful French book and it had... Um, white and blue cover on it and I said to my husband I love that he said I'll get that for you for one of your Christmas surprises <laughs> because I loved the book because it would have gone with my colour scheme in the kitchen right, so, so it I was have, the aesthetics of yeah the book. it was the aesthetics oh, now right. also okay. I'd be interested in what was in the book yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'm going to I have um, I have a coffee table that has a glass um, yes. underneath it yeah. so I'm going to put that in one of the compartments in that and I know I'll remember that was the book that I got that Christmas I loved it for that and I'll flick through it the odd time very good indeed. All right. Uh, tell me about the mood board that you have, says he going off uh, a mic. And again, you'll, you'll put this up on your I'll put your this up. People, so my next, my next of the seven um, ideas is mm. use wallpaper. So a couple of those pictures have wallpaper on them. And we well, both love one. Oh, this one is just stunning. Now, it probably could be seen as being old-fashioned in, yeah, in, and it, I think in, it's, in the best possible yeah, way. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean. a, it's a Georgian room yes. in a Georgian house. So that wallpaper absolutely um, suits the house yes, and the colours in the wallpaper perfectly. would be Georgian colours as well. Stunning. So it's gorgeous. So the next one, I'm thinking of... So wallpaper's great. People say to me all the time, is wallpaper in, is wallpaper out? Wallpaper is always in. Right. And it can be used in different ways. Um, years ago, we used to have wallpaper on the top, wallpaper on the bottom, and a border in between. Yes. That's still there. 
Right. Is that it the, hasn't gone the away. dado rail? Dado rail thing, or, a bar, or, or, or an or actual roll of border. Is that paper. still there? It is, is it? still there. I thought that was gone out with the Indians. It's not, no. But yeah. you know, it's horses for courses. So it depends on the style, it depends on the room, it depends on the person. Dado rails are probably after way after overtaking the border paper. Yes. And now people are saying to me in their house, well, will I, and I come across this weekly, will I take off the bar, will I take off the data rail, what will I do? So I say we'll have two options. We can paint the data rail the same colour. So we'll say the, this house, these houses might have had a white data rail, colour on the bottom, colour on the top, yes. white skirting board. But we might decide now to do the whole wall, including the data rail and the skirting board, the same colour. Oh, right. And pick out the door and the frame. So we're bringing it bang up to what's very happening good, but now. the data rail isn't standing out. Isn't standing out. Oh, yeah, and sometimes people don't want to take off the data rail because when they take off the data rail, the right. wall will be damaged behind. What about the border that used to be on top? Gone, yeah, definitely that, gone. Definitely yeah, gone, we can, we can definitely okay. say they're gone. We can say yeah. that gone. Will, will you talk to us about the <coughs> other one that I think we both agree is absolutely yeah, gorgeous. So we, it's a stairway, it's a hallway, obviously, but the mosaic on the floor Mosaic Victorian stunning, tiles stunning, is absolutely stunning, gorgeous stunning, and yeah. the colour on it is stunning. Mm. So I put that picture up um, because I like the whole mood and the feel of that mm. hallway and um, I love that. So people mm. will get to see that. But, I, but looking at both examples that we, we, we both prefer, lighting, now I know we're, people are sick of us talking about lighting, but the main thing for mood has to be lighting. Has to be lighting. Or light in general. I and suppose. light in general. So if I go back, it like light plays an essential role in enhancing or supporting your interior design choices. What light bulbs you use, what colours, because there's different, so many different colours available in mm. light bulbs now. And you can make a room warmer, you can make a room cooler, and it can lighting can highlight some key elements. For instance, if I go back to my kitchen, not to be talking about mine, but I know people want to hear about yeah, what I my house yes. do. I don't have any top presses, but I have four shelves, and on those shelves I have um, not much kitchen paraphernalia really, but different items for my travels, a little bit of um, different vinegars and stuff like that. But on each under each shelf, I have a light. And then up high over my two shelves, I have three lights. What I'll do actually is I'll bring in a picture next week just so I can explain a little bit better. And I have three lights. So I have different, loads of different lighting choices in my kitchen that creates a fantastic mood. I have wall lights. Um, I have other wall lights. I have shelf lights. I have um, spotlights. I have a centre light. And I remember when I was doing it, my electrician said to me, there's no point in you doing all this lighting now. You don't need any of it. I said, this is double the lighting of a standard house, mm. right? I said, I don't care. I want it. And mm. I put in the money into our house in lighting and I don't regret one penny of right, it. Right, because you have options. Because I have options. options. All the and time, you see, yeah. when you're running the wires and you're doing a new build, you only have that chi You only have the option once. once. Yes. So I would say to anybody that's re renovating a room or parts of their house or building a house, the best money you are going to spend in that whole house is lighting and heating. Yes. Uh, is somebody wondering about coving as well, and is that still in? And this listener says, I love plain coving in a room. Is coving still it, there? It absolutely is, and yes. depends on the size of the room. It can really uh, bring a room together. You might have a high ceiling, you might have a very big room, and it works. And is coving in? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And still, you have an example here without coving, and it's beautiful too. So it just goes to show you how. I, I think it goes to show uh, it, it, what, a, what matters is what a person what the end look a person wants and of course it's down to budget as well because we're talking about I'm talking about extra lighting I'm talking about making sure that you've um, 
enough heating, I would say to everybody, overheat their house. So extra yes. BTUs when you're putting in your radiators first day. Um, lighting is so important. But all of this is down to budget yes. too. And, and could I stick something in there just to, for this, uh, just from an experience point of view? Sockets, put in over the amount put of sockets enough, you think you'll put want. Put in enough of sockets and put you in your phone them. charging points. Yeah, yeah. And again, whether it's a bedroom or a kitchen or a bedroom or whatever, you need to plan your lighting and your sockets. And if you get those things right in the house, it's very easy then interior design mm. any room in your home once you have the basics right. Of course. But you might decide even something simple, I want a lamp over on that wall. And without a socket, and without you, a socket you can't have it. So so it gives yeah. you, you options, doesn't it? All right. If people want to make contact with you and talk to you, Karen, how can they do yeah, that? It's 086 606 9009. And it's, again, I'll, mention, I'll say that number. It's 086 606 9009. Have I time for two or three colours? Really quickly, yes. Uh, soda bread, boathouse white, grey wolf, ivory tusk, palm house fountain, oyster bed, and wolf hound. Very good indeed. All right. And again, if people Google those names, they'll come up with the, 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 the proper the colour the the swatch. Will, will, will you pop up. that up on your own yes, social media? And, yes, and I, I know Emma will do so here. As well. What is your own social media, by the way? It's Interior Concepts on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, web page is interiorconcepts.ie website. All right. Very good. And you'll put up the mood board yes, as well so that people can have a look. All right. Karen, always a pleasure. Thanks Thank very you. much indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. You're very welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. Now we have a lovely prize for you because we're celebrating along with the Talbot Hotel in Clanmill. Their winter wedding viewing day is happening this current, uh, this coming Saturday, even uh, the 25th from 11am to 4pm. And because we're celebrating that, they've given us a festive afternoon tea for two to give away every single day. And that's in their newly renovated wheat bar and a bistro. And Emma has come up with a question and it's fierce difficult altogether. Really, you're going to have to Google this one. She wants to know, where was baby Jesus born? So there you go. So if you... <laughs> If you can answer that, 083 311 And uh, we'll have a draw for that uh, a little later on in the programme. But right now, it's time for... Legal discussion on tip today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch joins me in studio. Good morning to you, John. Good morning to you. You're shaking your head there with that question. I know. I just... I've been in church a couple of times over the recent past and I, I think one of the, my observations is I think I'm getting so bad it, it's, it's I suppose lack of being there but it's, it's kind of people known when to kneel, when to stand and, uh, but when you're saying the decades of the rosary now it's getting quieter right now people are forgetting the prayers so I'm just thinking maybe the, yeah I, I, I'm always be. afraid in a situation like that that somebody will look to me to do one of the um, one of the decades and yes. uh, me not having a notion yeah. about it and stuff. You know? <laughs> it's amazing the way things have changed over the years. Oh, it's it? incredible! I mean, we used to. I I was just thinking about it, you know, uh, on a less. Uh, but I remember as a kid, um, having to 
sit down and do the rosary. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it was and funny. And, and then I watched my parents and I watched the tra- the transfer through the years. You know, and you just wonder. It has so dramatically changed mm. over the last number of years. Like, and that, that's that's only yeah. It's a, that's relatively a very short relatively time, short it? time. Yeah. It's you know, it's forty or fifty years. But I mean, we are getting to the stage now. Somebody, somebody. I, I remember somebody saying to a young couple about whether they were going to get married in the church or not, and. Um, uh, one 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 of the couple kind of said, "Oh no," and the other couple said, "Oh no." Well, I'd have to because if I didn't, you know, the family wouldn't be too happy. But so this, yeah. But you know, you just wonder. I suppose it's for a completely different discussion. Of where are we going with it? You know. Yeah. Whereas, and you know, the the whole thing. You know, we're talking about somebody flippantly said ChatGPT or AI or whatever. Are we going to have AI uh, religion? And masses and, and priests, you know, and the priests, and, you know it's, it's sad to see it. You know. Remember, though, a couple of years, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't be all that religious, but I was setting up to play for a wedding, and while I was setting up, there was rosary going on mm. in, in the church, but the sonic value of it was amazing. Mm. It, was, it created mm. a whole atmosphere yeah. within itself, you know. It well, was, it does. Like you, I mean, one of my favourite things to do, uh, or one of the things that I like to do, maybe a favourite, but one of the things I like to do when I'm abroad, I just love going into churches. Oh, me that, too. Yeah. But it's the whole sense of the history of it, yeah. and the fact that you're kneeling somewhere and you're if you like, you know, participating in whatever it is that's been done for centuries. I remember when I did the Camino, we used to pull in. I, I cycled with a fellow who was very happy to go in and out of churches and then there was another fellow who wasn't so happy. <laughs> he was a Scottish fella and he, was, he wasn't of the same discipline, if you know what I mean. But he, after about three days, he says, I'm not going into a, I'm not going into another one of those churches. He says, I'll be banned when I go home. But it was, it was incredible. You'd go into a church that was was thousands of years old, small little church up on the in the mountains in Spain, and just that whole sense that you know somebody kneeled in exactly this yes. place centuries ago. Yes, and not, that, not that's hundred years marriages, baptisms, yeah, everything. And all yeah. Of that. yeah, it's yeah. it's an amazing. It's and I suppose that is that sense. Whatever else, I mean, one of the saddest things I suppose I find about it is that sense of community is lost. Mm. You know, when 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 religion went and became not as prevalent in terms of, you know, Sunday mm. Mass and things mm. like that. It's the community side of it that has suffered as well. Whatever about the course, baseline yeah. religion. God, you've got me into a very philosophical going, yeah. mood this morning. Well, as we're talking about it, funny enough, graveyards, I'm obsessed with graveyards. Really? I love to read old stuff. Amazing history. Oh, Amazing stuff, history. You know, just yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Anyway, to much yeah, more... Much more mundane <laughs> More things. mundane things. GDPR, yeah. the bane of my life. John. GDPR, GDPR, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing... What, what is it, first of all, just for absolute clarity? Well, yeah, well, I hope, uh, is there such a thing as absolute, absolute clarity? <laughs> <laughs> General data protection. It was introduced by the EU, and the whole idea behind it is whatever about, you know, that your own personal data should be personal to you and that if somebody else has it, they have responsibilities to ensure that that other people don't get it or the people, do you know what I mean? So it's protecting your personal data. And... I mean, the big question that has kind of circulated over the last number of years in Ireland is that, okay, if you have a data breach and if, as a result of that data breach, you're very upset 
or you're really put out by the fact that you know I was on Tip FM and I I I gave some information that was then subsequently released without my agreement or my consent. It's a breach. So you have a responsibility, or anybody who holds other people's data. I mean, it cross, comes Absolutely. across so many things. It's yeah. you know, it's everywhere. You know, so the big question that, and by the way, it's not answered. Uh, I was going to say strangely enough, but it's not answered as to, you know, what level of breach are you to expect damages for? And that's as as usual, you know, what are the consequences of the breach? And what does, if there is a breach, you know, do you have to, do you have to pay? And if you have to pay for it, is there, is there such a thing as punitive damages? And punitive damages or damages are very much an American thing, if you know what I mean. Like all of those cases you've seen in the States where you see them getting millions from a jury. I remember sitting on a plane with an American lawyer. We weren't the only two, obviously, on the plane, but he was sitting beside me. And um, he was talking about... And I said to him, how come damages are so... What appears to be excessive in in the United States, he said. Well, it's simple, really. He says, and I can't do an American accent, but anyway, he said it's really simple. He said we take the view that you penalise people when they get things wrong, and you pay what we call punitive damages. So the damages doesn't really necessarily reflect the injury. Europe is different. The common law system is different. The common law system is that you've got to measure the damages in the context of the actual breach that's done so if somebody releases your information unwittingly or otherwise it obviously depends on the consequences and what flows from that breach or that information being released and so the debate is because it emanates from Europe and because it's it's a directive that came from Europe and because we now put it into Irish law and one of the principles of European law is that there's a kind of a dichotomy of approaches insofar as the European system will tell each member state, here's a directive. So in this case, it was a directive on data breaches. Mm. Here's the directive. You've got to now implement it in your country. And the European system is that it, they delegate certain functions to the member state and in this particular instance what they've delegated to the member state is how much damage compensation stroke will will be payable in the event of a breach. So that's so, a very important portfolio isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. it's a huge yeah, yeah and, and but but there have been I'm going, to, I'm going to throw a number at you because you probably can't contradict you here and see what I have in front of me here, but there's 14 referrals, in around 14 referrals by different member states to the ECJ, which is the court that kind of gives you an assessment of what the European law is like. But there's been quite a number of referrals to them asking the question, what and how do we come up with mm. the level of damages? Because there's not so much, like it's, it, I was going to say it's easier to determine damages if you've got an injury. You know, I mean, if you're involved in a road traffic accident and you've got injuries, well, you know, you have, first of all, you've got a, a book of quantum that mm. gives you some indication as to what level of damage you're going to get. But you've got a very physical injury, you know, yes. and it's, it, that's, you can see it. But in the case of non-physical you know, non injuries... That, that's a more difficult thing. So, you know, damage to your reputation, damage to your credit, 
you know, like let's say it's a breach by a lending institution or an inst- financial institution. But so, but the real question that kind of really kind of kind of grabbed the member states was where somebody says, I'm really upset about this. This has really affected me and, you know, I'm losing sleep at night, etc. Does that attract damages? And this has kind of appeared in the Irish courts in a couple of scenarios, but not in a lot. And what they've come up with, they love, you know, the way the legal system loves the old Latin words. Sure. De minimis is, is the word that kind of what surfaced on this, which is, is there a kind of a, a threshold? You have to come up to a certain level of upset before you get damages. So, in other words, if you're just upset about it and it's kind of minimal damage, does that mean zero compensation? And that's because, you see, the European court said that it doesn't automatically follow that just because you have a breach of your your mm. information, it doesn't automatically follow that you're going to get compensation. And what we're talking about now, John, is on top of the fact that there are huge fines. If oh you yeah, breach, absolutely. If you mm. breach, so this is on Correct. top of that. Oh no, this is for the individual whose personal the, data has yes. been released. Because the front page of is the Examiner today. HSE sued over four hundred times due to the cyber hack. Alone, mm. so, correct. So there's correct. a perfect example of what we're talking That's about. That's a perfect example of it, and and therein lies the issue, the question. Being sued is one thing. But what's the level? What, how are the courts going to deal yes. with it? Yeah. If you know what I mean, and that's what you're talking about. And um, you know, it's been it's been a really interesting couple of two or three years about this because very very recently, initially they were stalling everything. Mm. When I say stalling everything, the 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 British the English courts came up with that there is a stand, there is a, a minimal figure, de minimis rule. So they applied the rule. They said, look, for a trivial kind of, I'm upset about it, that's not enough. We're not going to pay a compensation for that. So they kind of, they set that test. In, in, in Ireland, they hedged their bets initially because of the cases being referred to the ECJ, to the European Court, mm. to ask the European Court, you tell us, is there a minimal test or is there not? Or how are we supposed to do this kind of thing? Now, the the European Court actually issued a case, but surprise, surprise, it didn't really clarify what it's what the European Court said to the member states, all of them, because obviously when they when the European courts issue a, a judgment. They basically are giving directions to them, each member state. So you can imagine there's quite a lot of courts yeah. and different court systems. Because if you look at the Irish system, it's common law based, UK common law based, French and Germans are not common law based. They're they're a different system altogether to our system. So they're 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 kind of giving guidance to a whole different different types of court systems. And when they gave this guidance, so they were asked the question, is there a, is there a de minimis rule? And they came back with, no, there's not. Uh, so therefore, that threw that out the, out the door, if you like. Then they were asked the question, well, is there, is there a way that we can do this? And the answer came back, no, it's up to the member states to make a decision as to what and how they're going to assess damages. Mm. And have we done that here, John? Yes, we then had a case literally in the last year 
all of the cases were stalled. I was going to say stalled, but they were deferred until this judgment. Then, once the judgment issued, then we actually did have a case which was held in the, heard in the circuit court, not appealed to the high court. The case was handed down, and twas. I'll tell you the circumstances because you, you've just drawn uh, my attention there to the, the HSE. The HSE, but yes. the one in this particular one was an interesting one because and an interesting example of what we're talking about. You had an employee uh, in a company in a fairly senior position and they were doing training demos, training, uh, I'm going to say demos, they were doing training videos. Yeah, videos. They were showing training videos, right? And in them, they used CCT footage. And in the CCT footage, the senior manager was shown in it as an example to the people being trained as to how not to do the job, if you know what I mean. Okay. And in fact, he wasn't, it was, it was incorrect. He wasn't, that wasn't him. He wasn't actually there. And what I mean is that when they did the video, it looked like he was the one that, or one of the ones that committed the breach and didn't follow proper procedures. But in fact, he just happened to be in the video, but wasn't involved in the activity. But you couldn't see that from the video. It looked like, you know, it's like John Lynch is not supposed to uh, talk to, uh, let's say, if the client comes in to make a will and it's the the elderly uh, parent and the child and son or daughter, whatever. And the practice is that you're not supposed, you're supposed to say to the son or daughter, I have to take instructions directly from your mother or your father. And that's good practice. And you do a video. So you show a video in my office with me bringing in the client um, and be going out to the waiting room, bringing in both. And then it looks like I brought both into the office so I'm in breach. Okay. Whereas, in fact, the other one went to the loo instead of coming into my office, okay. if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. So that was the scenario. So therefore, you had a breach without a doubt. So he then sued his employer. And he said that he, he, he said that he lacked sleep. He wasn't able to sleep. That his, his fellow employees were taking the mick. <laughs> weren't, weren't if that's right so he wasn't really very happy about that and um, he, so as far as he was concerned so you had a breach and as a result of that breach there were consequences and he was looking for compensation as a result of it so the case came before the court all the previous cases had been adjourned and the judge in this instance decided I have the ECJ judgment It now this is this may be oversimplifying it, but I have the EC judgment, the ECJ judgment, i.e. the European Court judgment says it's up to the member states. So I'm not going to defer this anymore. I'm going to make a decision. So the judge made the decision and he said, OK. And the gist of it was, he said, well, OK, yes, there's a breach. There might be a de minimis rule. In other words, you know, there mightn't be a threshold here, but... You know, he's given evidence uh, that he was slagged by the cl- by the other mm. employees. He was upset about that. He said he didn't sleep. He was upset about that. Um, and he generally, he, and he made an award of compensation. And he said, okay, in this particular instance, I'm making my decision. I'm awarding compensation. And I give it, you can, he said that I'll have a look at 
the book of quantum in personal injuries. And when I look at it, I see there's a range of compensation for psychological stroke, psychiatric injury. I'll have a look at that. It's the only real guidance that I have. When I look at that, there's a range of between 500 and, say, I, I'll just pick a figure, say 6,000 or something like that. And he made a, he, he decided on a figure. But before he did that, then he said, well, there's a lot of these cases that would be below the 500 figure, he said. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, the level of compensation isn't huge or shouldn't be huge in this situation. And and it is a matter of proof. In other words, like everything else in law, you have to bring evidence mm. into court about what the injury was. So how much compensation do you think he gave? Three grand. Two. Two grand. Two grand. Well, so, it would yeah. cost them that you're in, in legal fees, would it? Well, there's an interesting thing that you, 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 hit, you hit a very soft spot there because under the new Courts Act in 2023, they've, they've introduced a change which isn't yet implemented that brings the, like two grand brings you into the district court in terms of compensation. But for GDPR cases, they're all taken in the circuit court at the moment. But under the 23 Act, they're going to be brought down to the district court. So your point is a very interesting one, i.e., but you'd pay, you'd be, you'd be paying a fair whacking costs. But you get circuit court costs for a GB, GDPR case because it can only be brought in the circuit court. When you bring it down to the district court, that will change things as you can Very imagine. Can I ask you a quick question? Before, at, at the risk of causing a run on Lynch solicitors, <laughs> if if I found out, if I was alerted <laughs> to the fact that through the HSE cyber hack, yes. uh, my, my details got out there, mm. I can't tell you that it caused me particular grief mm. or I can't tell you that it mm. affected any other aspect of my life. Mm. But my details are out there. Mm. Have I a case? Well, that's the very good question because you do have a case, but what the law says is that just because there's a breach, doesn't it doesn't automatically follow that you have loss or compensatable loss. So the question here is, if you're coming in to me saying... Yeah, my 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 information was leaked. It's out. It's out there, and there's a number of elements to it, right? And there are there are a couple of nuances in this, like like everything else. If the court looks at it and the HSE immediately, once they identify the breach, apologise to it to you for it. So let's take your situation. If they apologise to you for it, if you take action immediately on it, in other words. The court will look at how fast are you going to react to the breach. You know, are you going to immediately go and say, wait a minute here, this is my data, you shouldn't have breached it. Secondly, if the HSC turns around straight away and says, we're really, really sorry about this, Fran, you know, this is outside our control, but we fully accept it as a breach and we apologise to you. So if, if all that runs through, then the next question the court is going to look at is going to say, well, right, Fran, what exactly are your losses your non-material losses, because obviously if you have a material loss, like if as a result of that breach there is a material loss, mm. i.e., you know, if it was to affect your your health or if you had to undergo, say, medical treatment as a result and yes. because of the breach or whatever, if you know what I mean. Or if it pred but if if you're simply saying, I was really upset about this, 
but you can't produce any. You know, you're not really right. saying you're. Okay. Well, then you you. It's, and and the fact, of course, we're always you're going to get time. hit with the but, de minimis but, rule but, there. But the fact that possibly down the road, yeah, my information could be used in a manner which could affect me in some which way. Which could affect you. Now, there's a really interesting question because what the court said in the circuit court, and again, you're really only looking at one judgment. There's no definitive judgment mm. on this yet mm. from the ECJ or from the Irish courts. Uh, and that's not fair. I'm not being, I'm being possibly unfair to the circuit court judge. Obviously, he did give directions. He said he did give a couple of indicators. Yes. You know, he said, you know, you must prove that you have, that there are consequences to you, right. if you know what I mean. You have to prove. Like, let's say Fran came back in to me or Fran's brother or whatever comes in the following day and he says, well, because of this breach, I've been, you know, I have literally suffered from post-traumatic stress, yeah. Yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. And it's a, psych- a recognisable psychiatric injury. Like, let's say, I mean, it's like it's like everything in Fran. I always remember uh, in the early days when a client came in to me who was involved in a road traffic accident. And I remember, and it was just simply, there was no actual impact. It was the lights, you coming through the lights and a car flew past him. And literally, just somebody broke the lights, but no impact happened. And he suffered from a psychiatric injury. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, okay. Like, in my in my head, I thought that seems to be an overreaction to it. But it was a very serious uh, yeah. consequence. So yeah. far, these you could have. But the key thing, as I've often said to you in a court of law, is if you're going to go in and make a claim, you don't get compensation just because they breached it. That's very interesting. Yeah. That, that and that certainly wasn't my understanding, but it's great. Yeah, it's yeah, great to have yeah, that yeah. clarified. John, thanks very much indeed. Always a pleasure and always most interesting. Thank you, John Lynch of Lynch Solicitors in Clonmel. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry in association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over fifty years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie. Thurlis author Susie Murphy has published A Class Inherited, uh, the sixth book in her historical fiction series, A Matter of Class. And I'm delighted to say that she joins me online. Susie, good morning to you. Morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Lovely to talk. I can't believe that this is the sixth book because I remember talking to you first time round, Susie. It's amazing, isn't it? I know, it's mad. We've come a long way. (laughs) (laughs) Along, and did you intend right from the start that Bridget and Cormac would would exist for so long? I suppose. Well, in the in the beginning, it was it was supposed to be just one book actually, and then uh, just that book kind of got so big that I was like, okay, I think I'll split this into three, and then after the three, I was like, okay, I think I think there's more to tell here, so I just kept going and. Um, at one point, I was going to like skip like a period of time, like about eight years, and then um, I told my mom and my friend about that. They were like, uh, "No," so I had to put another book in there too. So um, yeah, it just kind of kept expanding. So I'm um, on number six now. That came out yesterday, and there'll be at least two more in this series. Right. Um, yeah. There might be a ninth. There might be a ninth book in there, but I'm I'm kind of letting that idea just kind of ferment in the background at right, the moment. So it's all, I, all marinating in the head at, yes, uh, at I, uh, the I moment. I figured yeah. the characters will probably tell me what's going to happen at some point. <laughs> it is, of course, historical fiction. So what era are we talking about? Just to remind people, Susie. 
Yeah, it's the 19th century. So um, the first book uh, takes place in 1828. And then um, uh, obviously time passes through the series. So the latest book is actually 1846, 1847. So it's kind of covered about two decades almost now over the six books so far. Um, and and I, re- I remember reading an article about you, Susie, where you basically said that you think you were born out of time in a lot of ways. Are you fascinated by this era? Would you like to have lived through this uh, wonderful era, era, I suppose, and a, an era of huge change? Absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I, like it's easy to have a very romanticised view of, of that era. Like, you know, I mean, I love the idea of, you know, ball gowns and mm. going to the ball and the courting and all that but you know I, I, I do try to keep a very practical head on myself as well because it was not a good time in terms of hygiene and health and poverty and like the class divide was so massive like you know there was so much of a, of a gap between the, the wealthy and, and, and the poor struggling to get by like you know so I'm very conscious of the fact that it was not an ideal time but I, I like to uh, mm. I like to romanticise parts of it and then remember that there was a, a personal element to it too and try and, try and capsulate both. And, and, the, and the, con- the conflict of this era is kind of the backdrop to individual stories. Would that be fair to say, Susie? Yes, yes. So, so the, the, the location of the first book is, is a, a, r- a rural country estate which is owned by an Anglo-Irish landowner but... Uh, you know, the, the Irish Catholics are the ones, the tenants living on the land, you know, so there's a lot of tenant unrest and that, uh, that uh, blows up a little bit in book three, actually. So that's where that um, comes into play quite a bit. And then the latest book, book six, uh, the famine is taking place at this time. So, so now there's that uh, extra element of what's going on in the background as well and the fact that, you know, um, the Irish were starving while the upper class were still um, comfortable and wealthy. So uh, that that conflict comes into play a lot through the series. And through the series of books, Cormac and Bridget, they, they, they went to, to London, they went across to America. And in the current book, are they sort of, are they home now? Is that is that the way it is? So that, that's actually, yeah, a big crux of this of this. Uh, book is 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 making that decision uh, because they were they were in America for books four and five and and the the, the a couple of letters arrive at the start of book six and that's what uh, uh, brings them back across the water so there's some of this book is set in England and some of it is set in Ireland so it's split between the two and we're into the next generation essentially as well aren't we we are yes there is a second generation involved now as well and they're growing up too uh, so their stories are coming to the front as well. Um, so there's, there's a f- multiple characters to keep uh, track of now and 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 their stories and their 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 love stories as well. But it's such a, a, a fascinating tale indeed. How does it work for you? Because we don't want to give away too much of the the detail of the current book, but how does it work for you, Susie? I mean, do you, do you have these stories sort of made up in your head and it's a case of putting it down on paper or do you struggle through? How does that work for Susie? So, so the kind of the, the general framework I've had in my mind for a while. So I, I would have I would have seen ahead what's going to happen in these books. And um, so, but but then when it comes to to the actual writing, then I know I need to flesh things out a lot. So there, that's what I have to add in 
extra layers, you know, subplots, and we might realise there's characters that are needed here that I hadn't thought of before. So it's like I have the bone to begin with. They've been they've been in my head for a while, but then when it comes to writing, that's when I really need to add on the flesh, you know, and uh, and and think about how to actually expand the story to make it uh, coherent the whole way through and um, intriguing, you know, to, to keep people reading. And I, I also think that you can have a fantastic story, but if you don't have the authenticity around the story, it doesn't work quite as well. And you look to your, your childhood in Tipperary and in Clare, I know as well, to get that sort of authenticity, don't you? That's right. Um, uh, one of the locations in the first book is a, is a Cormac's family cottage. And I really drew on my, my grandparents' cottage uh, for that uh, whole um, environment. So... Um, my my grandparents had a home in Ballyvaughan in County Clare, and I just remember all my summers going there um, for visits and just just going there loads. And I just you know the smell of the turf fire and just the the the, the yeah the feel of that house really inspired the cottage and the story. I just felt that that was that was where I drew those those senses from. Very good. It's also televisual. To me, the story is. There any talk about this being made into a series or into a movie? Or that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> I, yeah. I I have had a lot of readers tell me that they can they can see it, like yes, they can yeah. they can just visualize it on the screen. So, um, no 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 exciting news to reveal on that area just yet. But there, we we'll keep the fingers crossed. You never know. <laughs> right, there will be a net uh, a Netflix series, I would imagine, very soon. Indeed, you're doing a launch, I think, Susie. Are you? Yes, that's right. So, um, so this sixth book, I, I released it online yesterday, and then uh, this Friday evening, I'm having a physical book launch in Bookworm Bookshop in Thurlis. Um and that's happening at half six on Friday evening. And um, if anyone would like to come along, that would be fantastic. Everyone's more than welcome. Um, we'll do a, a a little a little reading from the book, sign a few books, and just have a nice a nice little celebration to to launch the book on its way. It's a lovely idea. You couldn't be in a better bookshop. It's one of my favourites, I have to say. It's it's just fantastic. And it's an independent bookshop, which I think is very, very important as well. So everybody's invited along for that, Susie. Yes, and if if people can make it, just maybe drop me an email to let me know in advance just so that we have um, an idea of numbers. Mm. Um, My email is um, susie at susiemurphywrites.com So just a a quick RSVP will will just uh, give uh, let us know and uh, really look forward to, to seeing people there. And if we've whetted people's appetite about Bridget and Cormac's story, the back catalogue of books, will they be available in, in the, the Bookworm as well? Yes, yes. yes. The, the full series is available in Bookworm. Um, yeah, and, and it's available online as well, but uh, I'll be there on, on Friday night signing books in person, so people might like to get those ones. <laughs> that's very good. And it, 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 that's your hometown, isn't it, Susie? Is Thurlis your hometown? Yes. Um, technically, yeah. <laughs> like I, w- I would say I'm from Thurlis, uh, yeah. but I actually didn't move there until I was uh, going into secondary school. Right. Um, but because but, my we moved around an awful lot when I was small. My dad was a bank manager, so we 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 moved uh, I at three or four different homes along mm. the way. But but Thurlis was really where I very I good. put down my and, roots. And were you, you know? a nurse line girl or a presentation girl? 
I was an Earthline girl, and I actually, I actually was a teacher in the Earthline as well. I Were taught you? in the, um, uh. yeah, the the music school there, uh, St Andrew's Academy of Music. I was a piano teacher there for nine years, so uh, I have a long-standing connection with the Earthline and Thurla. Very good. So I'm sure many of your friends will will be there to say hello to you on on Friday night. Susie, congratulations to you, and and well done, and always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, Susie. Bye-bye to you now. That is uh, temporary author Susie Murphy there in that launch of a uh, marvellous book, marvellous series of books, by the way. If you're into historical fiction, you will love it. Um, Friday night at uh, The Bookworm. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, at the top of the programme, people claim I was sort of in bad form and I was giving out about everything. One of the things I was giving out about was uh, the notion from Professor Luke O'Neill where he says that restaurants probably shouldn't have salt on the tables because it's very, very bad for our blood pressure. But I was making the point, if you go down that road, well, the wine on the table is probably bad for us, the red meat is bad for us, uh, the butter, the sugar, I mean, so where do you stop? Peter joins me. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm good, Peter. Next time you go into a restaurant, if you find the salt isn't there, would you be cross, Peter? Uh, I wouldn't be staying in the Fran, to be honest with you. Yeah. What, what, what do you yeah. think of that? Is that nanny state stuff again, is it, you know? Uh, sure, Fran. I, I thought you were actually in great form this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to you. I was really, I was really enjoying it because it sounded an awful lot, a lot like myself. <laughs> you know. But, we're, uh, we're, we're, we'd be described as curmudgeons, Peter. You know that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but I'll tell you, uh, of course, at any stage, it's gone, it's gone ludicrous altogether, like, you know. Uh, mm. I was just thinking about it there. Uh, uh, I was saying, isn't the last chip inside in the bag with the extra salt on oh, it the nicest one of all? Don't I love it, to, <laughs> love it to bits, yeah. Well, one, one of my favourite takeaways is lines is takeaway. I'm sure you know it very well. But I, I, uh, like, I, I, I always say to them, you know, loads of salt. Salt and loads of vinegar on it, yeah. and I'm I'm aware. I mean, we're not stupid. We we know it's not great for us, but you know. Yeah, but sure. Look, Luke, Luke, and that's like those people. Like he's probably promoting his book. He's probably trying to get himself out there to, you know, to create stops up and. But the whole show, the whole thing, Fran, is absolutely madness. A bit of salt won't do anybody any harm, or a bit of butter, or a bit of like the spreads were all the the thing they were recommending a few years ago. Now they're not recommending them anymore. They're saying go back to real butter. They like salt, salt on a, on a nice warm new potato now with a bit of salt and and, and a oh, bit of butter. Like you won't beat that. Like you know. For so sure, yeah. I mean, you see, like, there's none of us stupid. I mean, we know the ketchup and the brown sauce and all. It's it's not ideal, but you, you know, I mean, we we make up our own mind on these things, surely. Yeah, I, I suppose they're really trying to bring it down to a tablet we'll take in the morning, and that'll do us till the day after, I suppose. Then, <laughs> and, and that'll come from one of these big companies that'll make a whole heap of money out of it, like the vaccines and all the rest of oh, the you stuff. You old so. cynic, you Peter. You old cynic. <laughs> well. I tell you, Fran, they're not taking my bag of chips with the salt away from me anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then like re- replace it all with a tablet, and then in 20 years' time, they'll say, oh, no, that tablet, in fact, as it turns out, was carcinogenic <laughs> in some way, and it killed you all. But uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Like, yesterday, it was a little bit more of a madness. Like, I really enjoyed that interview with the lady that was talking about the Bear Bear Rainbow Shape. <laughs> 
so I said I I try it on a few on a few youngsters like you know, about two years of age like you know, yes. my my um, grandson that and I started singing uh, bear bear rainbow sheep you know, and I don't know if I'm, whether it was my singing or he understood <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> And just just to remind me, just in case people weren't listening yesterday, yeah, yeah, Diane came on with me and she said a child came home from school and said that the teacher instructed them not to say yeah. Baba Black Sheep anymore, but Baba Rainbows, <laughs> which doesn't roll off the tongue very, very well. No, I looked out my window just last evening before we got there after a few minutes and <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a hunter, probably a couple of hunters, a lovely young uh, young lamb sheep out in the, out in the fields beside me and I was struggling, but I did see a rainbow, but it wasn't a sheep, like, you know, it was kind of around them. I know, and but then Catherine came on, and in fairness to Catherine, she, she just thinks it's all gone to the absolute bananas, you know. Um, but 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 it is, and another part of the... Uh, I've, I'm probably like yourself this morning, I'm whinging a, a fair bit today <laughs> to you. When I, when I heard about uh, Eamon Ryan giving the go-ahead for um, a motorway yeah. because of the Ryder Cup... Yeah, I know. I know. No, and no, really. the amount no. of times we're all cursing that Tipperary town that yeah. we can't get through, we can't make. And, like, there's no talk about that being done. No, but if and they had the Ryder Cup out in Ballycastine, they'd probably have it done all right, you know? Yeah, yeah but, like, for some reason, I, you know, it's just absolutely crazy, like, that Eamon Ryan is going to allow all these people to come in, build these roads for the Ryder Cup, fly everybody in, pollute the country and you and me, we can't drive down the south of our local village without he tell us to share a care or something, do you know? No, I have to so, say, I, I go through Adair quite a bit and it is a bottleneck, particularly at, at certain hours of, uh, of the day, but if that's the, I mean, I'd prefer if that was the reason he was doing it, that's fine but to talk about the Ryder Cup being instrumental in his decision. Yeah, of course the deer should be bypassed as well. Of course all our roads should be improved and all of that. And we should be left to have our cars that, that, that we're happy with to drive on them and, and stop being in any state. But building roads just because there's a golf tournament coming. So, like, that's crazy stuff. But, you know, I, I'm even getting worse now with what you're saying to me because you did right. There was no mention of the carbon footprint of all the people who will fly in. Yeah. Like if you want to, if you want to go down that road, uh, like why would you even allow competitions like that? Because how are they going to get to our island? They're going to fly. They're going to fly. And, yeah, and yeah. the flies are flights are creating more um, um, more toxins and all the rest mm. of it than any other thing. And like why? I all want them all to mm. come because I have no problem. I think all this is mad anyway. But uh, mm. like. When, when I helped them building a road for the Ryder Cup, I said, uh, But yeah, they, they well. can fly in, but you, you can't burn turf. I, I'm, I hope you're aware of that now, Peter. Uh, yeah, well... You're not um, to be burning turf or using salt. I, I know that. I, 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 I tell you, I keep it very private, um, <laughs> as you could see. I have, I have lovely coal, and it's not that smokeless stuff, and I'm so happy about that. And... Uh, uh, There'll be a knock on your door good. now. Don't be blaming me when there's a knock on your door, Peter. Oh, I, I, they're welcome. They come, they'll sit at a lovely fire, and I'll give them a hot whiskey, and they'll go away, and they'll say, are you all right? You know, they, they, won't, yeah, they will, won't put will, in the house. Will you give them salt on the sandwich? That, uh, that I will give them lovely fresh <laughs> chips with a bit of keeps it. 
Well, I'll address the, the things that are good for us. Yeah. I, was, I was in bad form at the start when you cheered me up, Peter. <laughs> look oh, look, look after yourself, Peter. Good yeah, Thank yeah you. good to talk Thank to you. You as always. Thanks, bye thanks bye Peter. Bye. That's, that's it for me. Emma produced and uh, Stephen is on the way with the Time Tunnel. He will also play match three for you and indeed right throughout the day with uh, Owen and with Carol as well. I'll talk to you tomorrow and I'll be in much better form. You'll look after yourselves now, won't you? Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.